So, Russ, this week, I've still, I've, well, how can I say, I've still been listening to, I am still listening to our uh, best of 2021 because they're, it's a really great list. I'm probably kind of amazed at all the great music we heard last year. I confess, I've been listening to a lot of things over and over, too. Yeah, me too. They're, um, because when we first heard them, we we're like, oh, this is great. But then you were on to the next week's thing. And then now at the, now that we've kind of made this list of the best we've heard all year, I was like, wow, these, these really were like some of the best albums we heard all year. I'm kind of uh, impressed by that. I want to encourage everybody to take a look at that list and go through it. It's There's some good stuff on there. Yeah, by all means, go back and listen to our best of 2021. If you haven't heard you know, some of those recordings... You know, get, get into those recordings. They're good. I think yeah. one of the things... I mean, I've consciously tried to do this, and it reflects my own biases and preferences, too. Mm. Of course, there's some names that everyone knows from classical music and jazz world. But I've tried to feature you know, things that you're not going to hear most other places. Uh, Up-and-coming players, players from different countries, uh, things that, you know, don't show up in Grammy Awards and uh, other yeah, places. Just, just showing that jazz is an international form. It's not, we, we think of it as American and specifically, you know, black American, you know, in its its origins, which it certainly is, but uh, it's it's spread all over the world. And it, uh, that, that needs to be, uh, a lot of the uh, international jazz, I feel, needs to be heard as well. Yeah, we should listen to as much as possible. And I especially want to give time, you know, to up and coming artists who you know, aren't on major labels and may have exceptional talent, but don't get, you know, the recognition they deserve. And I'm always right. looking for something new and new concepts. Uh, but as you said, we, the way we were going through our process of six recordings a week and trying to <laughs> uh, yeah, be able to describe everything, uh, we didn't get it enough time to just sit back and enjoy things. So over the holiday period and even into this week, I was going back and just listening to some things again. And even uh, this morning with my coffee, I had the Renitsky albums on again. Oh, good for you. Listening to those you know, You know what I had on today? Uh, an album that we actually didn't put in our jazz um, um, top albums, uh, Steve Slagle's album, Nascentia, which was really oh. good. Yeah, he's a great player and that yeah. record had a really good... Uh, combination of talent and uh, a nice mix of songs and he's got a new album coming out this year that's on my list so i don't know exactly when but i'm looking forward to that too that one was so positive i'd like to hear something else again speaking of programming for the uh for this um i actually got a comment from somebody who uh was looking at uh a a person who's a classical music fan Hmm. and she was looking at the records we were um not the artists, but the composers okay. that we were covering. And she said, oh, I didn't realize how little I knew about classical music. What she meant was uh, that it's more than Mozart, Beethoven, Vivaldi, you know, and uh, Bach. You know, the, we, we've covered a lot of composers that um, aren't really that well known. Well, that's down you to know. your eclectic tastes and also well, yours you, too. Your... Yeah. your uh, Ranitsky being a good example. Like yeah. That. Well, that that yeah. one I found. That but, was yours, though, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but nevertheless, I think, I think you. It's have true a lot to the of, podcast. Yeah, you have a lot of interest in twentieth uh, century and also, you know, twenty first century. What's going on now, composers? Well, so I always got, want to know what's going on now. You know, we've gotten 
you know, and other things, VASCs we had in and some other uh, things that people might not have heard. And we had those new ones like uh, Fagerlund and Tangi. Yeah. They were fascinating. You know, they're, they're yeah. just new things. And so I, I think, year. you know, the best music, it's only human nature to stick with what's familiar but especially you, when you're our age yeah but most people want to just kind of you know just said their musical tastes are set exactly okay but you want to remember what that uh what what's what's his name Otto got okay well i said this guy's name before i read this book about music and he said a teacher once told him that you shouldn't say i know what i like which is what most people say you want to say i don't know what i could like so you're always experimenting. Oh, do I like this? You know, that's what you want to be doing. That's right. Pushing, yeah. pushing those borders of your preferences and finding something new. And uh, we're doing the work for you. So uh, if you don't want to be bothered with that, uh, yeah. at least we well, still have to do the work. It. Yeah, of listening. You don't have to search for it, but you can. Yeah. You, you, you still have to listen to it. But that's and the fun part. Get tired of listening to us bloviate on all the musical topics each week. At least come in and check out. The recording list and you're going to get some interesting and challenging things to listen to i think indeed uh, enough bloviating for this week let's get going with the music right. now first you, of all what's the name of this podcast this i forgot is, <laughs> uh what is it it's oh yeah it's the adult music yeah. podcast which first features we make you an adult and then we give you adult music that's right music yeah. for the mature mind as we say, tongue-in-cheek. Or the maturing uh, mind. Maturing mind, yes. <laughs> or the wannabe the mature geriatric, mind. Not the geriatric mind. Not yet. Well, uh, and this is, we'll be doing that podcast soon. So we need a, we get a few hundred in before we hit the old folks home. And this is episode 45, wow. rapidly approaching 50, which we'll have to do something special for. Oh, yeah. Up there. We'll uh, be off, too. We'll be on vacation, which is good. Yeah. So we'll, we'll be on vacation you know, right here in our houses, but uh, yeah, <laughs> we're yeah, not going anywhere. That's right. But, uh, yeah, because the scary Omicron the world, is out the, there. The world and the state that it's in. So. Yeah. But all the yeah. better for listening to music. Uh, so yeah. before we yes. uh, get on with the music in uh, this episode, uh, once again, uh, listeners, uh, please remember in the episode description, you'll find links to the Spotify and Apple Music podcast. Uh, resources for the music we're going to discuss tonight and better yet at the top of the description there's a link to the full episode playlist that's all the music in one place on Deezer our preferred streaming platform where you can also follow us at username adult music podcast uh, why we like Deezer is they have a nice interface and you can stream at CD quality of course now Apple music is uh lossless CD quality. It looks like uh, Spotify has dropped the ball on their promise for that. I've been reading a oh, bit really? about that. Yeah, but uh, you can get all that at Deezer. Uh, Deezer has podcasts now too, so you can follow our podcast there if you'd like. Uh, username Adult Music Podcast, but we're pretty much on every platform out there, even YouTube, although uh, not too many people check us out there. Um, and uh, if you can't see the description or all the links on whatever platform you listen to us on, uh, come over to our host site, Podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and all the links and information is easy to access there. And if you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. That helps us uh, get into the browsing categories. And if you take a moment to also give us a ranking or write a review, that 
helps us uh, get noticed and our audience grows, which we appreciate. And if you have anything more detailed or personal, uh, you want to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Write us an email at adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah. Ask us about lawn darts. Lawn darts. That's right. Remember that from last week? Okay. Good, we were yeah. talking about this in the middle of the week, too, because we, we went into a little thing about it on last week's podcast because of uh, – which album was that on? That was um, – I don't oh, remember what we was, talked about last week. It was it the, one of the uh, jazz ones. Farnell Newton. Farnell Newton. Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, Lawn Darts. Lawn and we went yeah. into this uh, – our childhood memories. Yeah. We were just I, talking about the 70s, in fact. Lawn Darts. Everything was just violent sex, drugs. It was well, just a – it was a rough time. As I told you, I, I remember we playing – We were kids. The, I think that was the brand, the brand name was Jarts. Right, there was the one called charts, dart. right? And my grandfather yeah. had a set of them, and I remember he would sharpen them up on the grinding. <laughs> so they would, they would definitely go in the ground. So yeah. there's your there's your you goes, know, safety safety measures of the seventies. Yeah, they'd go into your head too if somebody mm. wasn't careful. I think they call really... them kill a kid jarts or something after a kill while. Kill a kid or something. Or something. Yeah. I think that we should. I guess we shouldn't joke because that actually happened. It did and that's happen. kind of the reason why they got uh, why they changed to the plastic tips now, but uh, the weighted plastic the weighted tips. One, but they used to be yeah. metal because people were insane in the 1970s. Well, yeah, we didn't worry about stuff like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Remember anyway. pop tarts. Yes, I do. Remember yeah, those? Pop tarts, yeah. pop tarts were this. You put them in the, the toaster oven. Yeah. And they'd come out, and you, they'd look pretty harmless enough. It's right. a, it'd be like this crusty thing, and you'd bite into it. It had this fruit filling in the middle. Yeah. But the fruit filling, was like a volcanic eruption in your mouth. It was. Yeah. It's so hot. It just left all these yeah. terrible burns. I can't understand why they would uh, make us eat that. And yet we know. wanted to eat them because, I don't know, it was kind of mysterious or something. I don't know why. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad Maybe I don't eat that kind of stuff anymore. But, but it was a good memory, yeah, Pop-Tarts. I suppose. Jeez, I don't know. Yeah, well, as 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 we mentioned last week, uh, it was survival of the fittest. That's right. And I guess that would be uh, us because we're still alive. Yep. We survived the 70s. Some of those Pop-Tart eating kids we knew back then, they didn't make it. So. They didn't make it, yeah. yeah. If it wasn't the Pop-Tarts, it was something else. Yeah, Pop-Rocks. It's the, it's the, the Pop-Rocks, <laughs> yeah. Mixed with Pepsi. Yeah. Yeah, whatever they did. <laughs> oh, boy. We could do a whole podcast yeah, on just could. this. We could do that. I have an but... idea of, with another friend. We want to do something, these, these kind of memories, but I don't know how far we can go with it, you know. We'll see. Oh. All right. Anyway, let's get back to music because that's why people are listening. That's why I'm here too because I heard some good stuff this week. All right, you ready to go? Ready for I'm the first? Ready. Um. All right. So first, we have a Baroque era music recording. Now, I just want to mention Baroque music is um. You want to get into classical music? This is an ideal place to start. It's cheerful. It's um. It's all likable too. There's no really bad Baroque music. It, it, at most, it's just going to be fade into the background at worst because it's all kind of lively and moving you know but some of it's really great and some of it isn't yeah at the it's worst just, it's derivative so, so. of something else um, yeah but that would be probably bach and then it will be not a bad thing to copy so yeah bach it's you can make the argument that bach is is derivative of like a lot of the music that was going around around him but the thing is he raised it harmonically to such like a high level that you can't really say that I would think you know? he consolidated and raised he the level that's the word raised to the use. Level, yeah, yeah he consolidated 
you know, these days you might, the people might want to say, oh, he, uh, you know. He appropriated it? <laughs> he appropriated, yeah. yeah, but he did, he consolidated. Yeah. And he really did, geez. That's, <laughs> uh, Bach, make no mistake, well, people argue, oh, maybe Mozart was the best composer of all time, Beethoven, but musicians will tell you it's Bach, all right? And it has a lot to do with the harmony and uh, just the endless possibilities of that music. Anyway, we're not going to hear Bach this week, so no. let's just pass that we're by. We're going to hear In the fact, Frenchman. The French People. This is an album by, oh, let me give you the name first. It's called uh, Concertos pour Violon. I guess you'd pronounce it Concertos, right? Pour Violon. The Beginnings of the Violin Concerto in France. There you go. You have three languages mm. in that title. Okay, on the Audax label. I, this may be the first time we're ever mentioning them. First time, and I think. The, uh, yeah, the artists are uh, Ensemble Diderot, who are um, from Paris, France. And they are directed and uh, by Johannes, Johannes Pramsoler, uh, who uh, also plays the solo violin for them. Mm. And he's actually from the uh, South Tyrol in northern Italy, uh, really? which borders Austria. He's right up by the border with Austria. So, we're kind of international ensemble here. Okay. Now, the idea behind this album is actually pretty interesting. Now, I, first of all, I want to mention Ensemble Diderot. They have a lot of fantastic records. They have all these albums called, for example, the Paris album, the London album, the Dresden album, etc. There are all these um, albums named after um, various uh, European cities. And uh, they're collections of Baroque music that was... Uh, being written in those cities at those times. And they're just fascinating. I just love them. Uh, the ensemble makes a really great sound. They're recorded very, as, as on this album, very dryly. There's not much reverb on these recordings. And very close. Uh, but it's a nice sound that they make. It's very enjoyable. And um, I really like them. So I was interested to hear this album. All right. Now, the thrust of this recording is that at the time... Uh, the new virtuosic Italian style that Vivaldi and Corelli had started in Italy was spreading around Europe. It was very, it was very exciting new style of music. <clears throat> and um, they were starting to come into France, and uh, the French didn't like it much. It figures, right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, <laughs> just... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, because they thought that if you if you think about the Four Seasons, everybody knows the Four Seasons by Vivaldi, right? It's uh, all about the violin, soloist, right? He's like playing all his, these, these flashy kind of um, lines while the rest of the um, ensemble is playing sort of this um, accompaniment. And they're also making, in that particular one, they're making all these nature sounds and things like that. Um, but they thought that the, the French thought that the soloist got an incredibly large amount of space to express himself in, and they didn't like that. They wanted everybody to have a space to express themselves in. And this kind of plays into the whole idea that I've mentioned on other um, um, yeah, podcasts where uh, French music is mostly about the timbre, the color of the uh, instruments. Even in the Baroque era, they were doing this. They just had a whole different approach. And that's a good thing because it distinguishes them from all the other countries in Europe. Italy had its own sound, too. It was virtuosic. It was bright. It was springy, um, meaning like with the rhythm, okay? Mm -hmm. It was, um, and things like that. And um, so it, it was very different than the French style. And also, Italians were the innovators at the time. Um, that eventually changed when they invented opera and uh, had the perfect language for it and just didn't invent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
There's a great uh, Robert Greenberg goes in one of his things goes into Ger- why is German music the one that drove music, you know, in um, the 19th century into the 20th century. And he says it's because uh, they don't have a musical language. Mm-hmm. Um, German is very consonant heavy. So they're constantly setting a vocal line in German. They're constantly having to experiment to get all the uh, the juice out of the uh, words, you know, the mm. sort of, uh, you know, the juice is contained in the vowels. So they would always try to set them in different ways, whereas, say, Italian, you have this perfect balance of vowel and consonant. It's a very musical language even when it's spoken. Mm. So once they figured out how to set it, they just never changed it. It was just already good. Right. So um, they just kind of kept going with that and just came up with new kind of like ways of, you know, projecting the singing and things like that. Anyway. <laughs> just thinking of the way he uh, taught that is really interesting anyway this um, this um, is interesting because yeah. it's French but it has uh, predominantly Italian influences in it so yeah, exactly um, because um, writing the, okay they thought writing the Italian way loses the elegance the clarity and the beautiful simplicity of the French style alright I get it I don't, I don't you know if you listen to like uh Couperin or these sorts of uh, keyboard works or the Fourqueré that we heard with the, mm. the trio with the viola de gamba. You get a feeling for that. Uh, the French weren't yet interested in the violin either. They preferred the lute and the harpsichord at the time. Um, again, color instruments. As a result, violin concertos did not flourish at court and church as they did in Italy, but they made their way into France via public concerts such as the Concert Spirituel, which we actually talked about in uh, another podcast, I can't remember which one, it is, what album that was. Ah, it's, I didn't write it down. It's too bad. Okay. Anyway, um, so French composers, there were French composers who wanted to write concertos, violin concertos, and uh, they had to figure out a way to get the French public to like it. Uh, the first um, uh, composer on this disc is really the uh, first French um, composer to write an Italian style concerto. Um, it wasn't necessarily this one, but uh, he was he introduced it in his uh, publication of concertos. Um, so, this first one is uh, Jacques Aubert, Concerto in D Major, Opus Twenty Six, Number Three. If you want to look that up, and uh, this is for four violins, cello, double bass, and harpsichord. Four violins. Sounds more like a concerto grosso, or like an orchestral. Mm-hmm type work. So he's kind of trying to sneak in the concerto style by having all these different um, instruments. So keep that in mind when you listen to this. This is actually a, this is an interesting album if you kind of have a historic sense. So if you like uh, that sort of thing, I very much like to put myself into the uh, the time that, in my mind, into the time that these uh, works are being written because um, mm. you have to understand like what because there are always issues. No, somebody doesn't like it, and somebody's trying this new style. And I'm I'm always very interested in what the issues of the day were. Today we just accept all of this because it's all old, right? All right. So anyway, first movement, Allegro, uh, sounds pretty Vivaldian, um, but it doesn't really spring like a Vivaldi work. And I'm wondering if this is in if the ensemble is doing this on purpose. Um, 
is the interpretation deliberately lacking the Italian bounce in order to simulate what the ensemble thinks would be the French sound? Because they're going more, I think, for uh, color here. And I think the four violins sort of invites that. They're just, it's just a big massed sound. It, it sounds like uh, the bounce could be pulled out, but there's very little of it there. Uh, the recording is very far forward and dry, as I've mentioned before. Um, there are some stretched out stationary chords and little to no vibrato on the solo violins, which I guess would have been in keeping with the time. Again, they're trying to sell this kind of music to the French people, these French composers. Um, the second movement, and, and again, these go like a Vivaldi concerto, fast, slow, fast. He really invented that format. The second movement is an aria, which would indicate operatic leanings. Or an aria is like a sung um work, okay, um, labeled Gracioso. This one sort of gently rocks in a 3-4 time signature. It's tuneful and vocally melodic, as the title would suggest. And the third movement is titled Chacona. Now, a chacon is a repeating bass line with uh, improvisations over it. And this this one sounds very Vivaldian. Um, there's some familiarly virtuosic figuration and a few slower melodic episodes. And it kind of I always kind of think of this as sort of like, um, speaking of the 70s, um, a slideshow. You know, like it was almost like you see a slide and then they kind of push the button and the next slide comes, the next slide comes. Uh-huh. It kind of feels like that's happening with the musical textures. Like they'll reach the uh, the end of the phrase and then like the entire musical texture will change right. and the violin will just keep uh, soloing over that or do whatever he wants. Anyway, very interesting. Think, think about that when you hear that movement. Okay, tracks four to six, Jean-Marie Leclerc. Concerto in E-flat major. This is for solo violin. And then there are two violins, viola, cello, double bass, and harpsichord. Uh, so Pram Solo is going to be playing the solo violin on this one. Now, Leclerc adapted the Corellian Sonata and Vivaldian Concerto for the French taste. Um, so that the courts liked it. He's really the first one to write it, a pretty Italianate concerto and be successful at it. Um, this is a pretty big name these days in Baroque music. Jean-Marie Leclerc. So check out some recordings of his music. He's been making more and more rounds. First movement, Allegro, Ma Poco. Very satisfying opening section, and I hear more Corelli in this. Um, Vivaldi's really more, much more dramatic than Corelli. Corelli's melodic. He he um, had thinner textures, too, because he generally wrote sonatas. So violin and harpsichord, or, or trio, or whatever it was. Excuse me. Um... You know, the figuration is more spare, too, in this. It's more melodic. Second movement, Largo, very slow. A very tuneful, interesting opening with detached notes to form the melodic phrase. So it's kind of memorable right away. when You you, you can easily hear every phrase start because of that odd opening. Um, and these detached notes become more legato as the melody progresses, ending in a satisfying cadence. Third movement, Presto. Uh, the opening kind of hints at a fugato, which is the beginning of like a fugue, and it sounds like uh, the other voices are going to imitate it, but they really don't. Well, they start to and then go off in a different direction. Um, in this one, um, there's it's it's kind of slow for a presto. Um, the ensemble plays it that way. Warm, enjoyable melodies that have a bit of Italian bounce. And there's even like a musette-sounding bass to accompany the figuration. A musette is sort of a French uh, bagpipe. It's a lot lighter sounding than the Scottish bagpipe, which could break windows <laughs> if, if played at full volume. Um, and uh, it evokes the French countryside. You hear it a lot in, in classical and romantic music as well. All right. So, and you, he does that here. And I think that's a, 
a nod towards French style music to get his audience on board. Okay, they'll think about the uh, um, aristocrats in France and really in Europe everywhere. Just they had this kind of nostalgia, I guess, for the countryside and simple folk, you know, um, which um, is a bit pretentious of them because they never lived there. They wouldn't want to live those <laughs> lives if they did. But they had, you know, like us, I guess, you think of foreign countries, they have this image of what it's like, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, they, they just think of all the, you know, the, um, the, you know, the paperwork they wouldn't be doing <laughs> if they were there <laughs> instead of the actual manual labor they would be doing. You know? right. So, um, okay. Um, yeah, Leclerc is a clever one in getting his French audience aboard the concerto train. All right, so next, Jean-Baptiste Quentin. This is a name I've never heard before. Concerto in A major. This is why I love the Ensemble Diderot and these these sorts of recordings. Concerto in A major, Opus Twelve, Number One. This has two violins, viola, cello, double bass, harpsichord. Um, this particular work has all the traits of an Italian church sonata. So there really are no standout voices in it, but it has an exposed first part. So violin number one is a bit exposed. So it makes it a violin concerto in a way, but it doesn't really sound like a violin concerto. You see how the whole concerto, the new this new style is being snuck into France. It's being smuggled in and nobody knows it's happening and they're starting to like it. Anyway, first movement, Largo, long opening... And without the first part playing at all, we don't hear the, that first violin. The two violins come in and play in harmony. And then suddenly, around the 1 minute 50 second mark, the texture quietens and the violins are pushed up front, though not quite into the spotlight. There's no athleticism at all in this sonorous movement. It's tuneful. Second movement, this is a four-movement work, by the way. It's, it's slow, fast, slow, fast. So the second movement is allegro, fast. This has a bit of sparkle in the violin lines at the beginning. The violins have some uh, exposed virtuosic figuration in this movement. Uh, the melodic, con- melodic content is very charming, and you could hear a lot of the ensemble echoing with the violins play. Always satisfying, because it feels like they're listening. You know, I really like that. Oh, if only people could do that when we talked <laughs> to indicate that we <laughs> were listening. Anyway, there's even something like a cadenza for the violins at the three-minute mark. Third movement, adagio, which is slow. Ticking quarter note rhythm that the violins play a melody over. It sounds like something Vivaldi would do. And the fourth movement um, is allegro, and this time is another ticking quarter notes, and they're counting down at a faster pace. Um, This put me in mind of um, chickens clucking. Uh, This is actually (laughs) a pretty familiar motif in Baroque and, um, you know, classical, you Mm. know, Music that they, they they will sort of imitate animals at times, and this one just kind of goes like, and the um, the violin is playing over that. <laughs> the, the lower instruments uh, sometimes um, briefly counterpoint the violin's lines. Uh, this is concerto like an execution, but the violins are not pushed fully into the spotlight. Again, this is rather nice. Um, hearing the whole ensemble contributing, as was the French style. So he's definitely smuggling this new Italian style in via the French style. Okay, next, tracks 11 to 14 is Jacques Aubert, Concerto in E minor, opus 26, number 4. Again, we, we've already heard this composer in the in the opening uh, concerto. This is uh, four violins again. This is his style, right? He's uh, kind of no, disguising thought, the concerto texture. I thought this one, in, you know, obviously these are 
close in time because this is number four and the first one is three. I mm. felt this one has a much more of a French sensibility in mm. the attention to timbre. Um, it's it's more refined and smooth in its lines, especially in the third movement. And I noticed, you know, attention to the, the tonality of the instruments uh, more so than the movement of, you know, we're going to hear in an Italian piece of the period. So I thought, you know, maybe he's appealing to the French listener more uh, with yeah. the tones in this one. Um, yeah, that's really what this album is about. Okay, or the works on the album is about. I mean, the the album itself is trying to appeal to French listeners of today, but it's trying to give us a little history lesson. I think. Mm -hmm. um, good to read the booklet for this one too. He explains a lot of this. The the uh, author of the booklet, whose name I can look it up, I guess. Um, this starts. This is one goes slow, fast, slowish. Fa Actually, this is. A, kind of got an interesting structure to it. Largo is the first movement. It's a fast Largo uh, with quarter notes ticking the rhythm again while the violins play melodic lines with arabesque-like bits tacked onto them. So little curly cues at the end of the melodies. Second movement, Allegro, starts with a ta-da kind of rhythm. Ta-da! Okay. And a little flourish at the beginning and it moves like a concerto grosso which is, I guess, a Baroque concerto with the, you know, the full ensemble playing, with melodic elements the main focus and not any of the individual instruments. The middle section, this is an ABA work, by the way. It's, it's uh, ternary A, then there's a B section, then the opening section repeats. Uh, it starts with another ta-da, so it's very easy to uh, identify when each section starts because you hear that ta-da um, rhythm. This is the third movement, in case you've forgotten or <laughs> fallen asleep. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Second movement. I made that made a mistake. There. I don't want to mislead anybody. This, the yeah, the fast second movement. Um, it goes into a different harmonic direction there, sort of like a Bach, you know, binary work would would. But it goes back to the opening, and there's another tada to bring us back to the opening section. That's the second movement, Allegro, track twelve. If you want to follow along, third movement, aria, again operatic. Um, largo e gracioso, and gracioso is the key word here. The rhythm has an elegant lift to it. There's no soloist. The ensemble plays this like a concerto grosso again, like full ensemble. There is a point where the violins play a contrasting section together, a subtle color change the way it's orchestrated, but one that probably would have stood out back in the day. Okay, so to us, it probably just sounds like, you know, maybe a concerto grosso or something. And the fourth movement is a carol. Car Carillon, carillon, I guess you'd say in French, um, which is kind of a, a mechanical set of bells that would be in a bell tower. And uh, the thing about them is they sound like bells, and they're very mechanical sounding, like the rhythm is sort of like, mm. it doesn't breathe, it just sort of um, works like a machine. And this is a favorite technique of the Baroque, in fact. They, Europeans loved this back in the day. Um, I think they still do to an extent. Mechanical things were really cool back then. And I happen to know, we live in Japan, of course, and Japanese people actually, there are certain Japanese people who are just fanatical about these, this period of Europe, and they actually collect these things. I've seen mm. them in shops, these sort of mechanical devices. They're incredible. Well, this was sort of the time when, you know, yeah. clocks and things in the mm. town center had all these sort of mechanical you know, figurines that would move right. around and it was sort of the height of engineering of the day. And I think that's expressed in the music of the time in a lot of the, you know, sort of functions inside the compositions uh, showing right. the logic and 
the logic was everything. The interworking gears of the musical devices that they were, you know, putting together in the compositions. Yeah, they had logic then, and now we have the semblance of logic today. (laughs) (laughs) If you're lucky. If you're lucky, yeah. Otherwise, it's it's off to the uh, crystals healing and stuff. Yes, chakras. Anyway, (laughs) chakras. Well. The mechanicalness can be heard in the brief figures circling around and repeating over and over just past the beginning. You hear this like after about 15 seconds. Um, it comes across a bit as a bit lucubrious. Uh, the violins tend to stick together, though there's one short section where one of them takes over for a few bars. Um, it's all part of the color, and later two of them play a carry-on figure in the harmony. So look for that mechanical um, ending. I don't want to offend the, uh, the indie listeners by... Dissing chakras. <laughs> Kinda, you can compress my chakras. I just want more logic in our daily lives. One of my chakras <laughs> is getting a little bit of uh, stress from this chair, so I'm going to stretch yeah, it okay. out. Yeah. Well, if I could just could levitate happen. while I did the podcast, it would probably solve that. But it would probably solve a lot of problems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, the, the next work on this is really the one that stood out for me, and it stood out also because of what I read about it. Um, André Joseph Exaudé. That's kind of an interesting name. This is a little different, isn't it? Yeah. It was. It, it stood out, really. Uh, concerto a cinq instruments, E-flat major, solo violin in this one, violin, two violins, viola, cello, double bass, harpsichord, plus a solo violin. Yeah, with a crazy cadenza. And there's a crazy cadenza, too. <laughs> All right, this is a pretty simple work. It is formality, but... All of its power is concealed in the solo violin part. The violinist's entrance makes one sit up and take notice. This is according to the booklet. And the written out cadenza on the relative minor of the dominant. The relative minor of the dominant. Wow. Hmm. So what's, let's see. This is um, E flat major. That's going to be B flat major would be the dominant. And G minor is going to be the uh, relative minor. Wow. So you're hearing a G minor. It really contrast. Cadenza, I mean, which is really yeah, weird. It's actually, yeah, it's almost like, it, you know, it was edited and chopped in. That's how different, in in the next piece, too, that, that's how standoutish the cadenzas are in these. Um, it's yeah, really it's kind of like you're, you're walking around a city block and suddenly you're in outer space. Yeah. It's really weird. Yeah. I actually like when that happens, that sort of thing, in, yeah. in music just, and movies. It's interesting. Kind of it's just surprising because uh, I don't really hear this kind of thing too much in Baroque music uh, right. in general. So uh, this one made me sit up and take notice. Yeah. It made us all sit up, uh, and it will make you sit up too, uh, d- depending on how jaded you are. Um, the, the band's double stops on ninths and tenths too. Okay, also mm. another odd sound. <laughs> ninths are kind yeah. of, they're a little dissonant. Uh, the violin soars above the rest of the ensemble in tessitura throughout the work. So when you hear the violin come in, it's bright and high. And this is the first time on this recording we're hearing something like that, and the only time, as it turns out. Okay, this is a three-movement work. It starts on Dante, which is slow. And then the second movement is slow, and the third movement is fast. It starts like, which is unusual too. It starts like a traditional Baroque concerto grosso. We've mentioned this a lot. Um, by the way, if you want a concerto grosso, listen to any of the Bach orchestral suites. That's a good e- example of what a concerto grosso sounds like. Or Handel wrote a lot of them too, mm-hmm. so you can you can use that as an example. 
The violin comes in at a very high register, making it stand out absolutely from the rest of the ensemble. Any virtuosity is tamped down until after the two-minute mark when the violin really gets to shine in that high register with some complex, for the period, solo figuration ending on a slowly taken cadence. It was, this is a great movement. I'd say this is the best track on the entire album, <laughs> this uh, f- track 15. Um, but again, I'm a big fan of listening to the entire concerto. Don't just stop after movement one. You got to hear all three movements. It's good for your soul. I think it's good for your body too. It balances things. Mm. All right. The second, this is, the, this is my chakra belief coming out. Okay. Cause I, th- I really think there's like some invisible <laughs> thing that's going on here. You know, the uh, Largo, the violin in that high register, plays the melody by himself over a quarter note ticking accompaniment. Again, the ticking. Dun, 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 dun. And the limelight is all the violins here. He's soaring again. The third movement, Allegro Manon Presto, is has a dance-like 3-4 quality to the ensemble. Sounds kind of like a rustic dance. A Baroque rustic dance, not like a 20th century Bartok rustic dance, which <laughs> sounds really rustic. Okay, the violin solos in brief phrases that acknowledge the dance-like quality of the accompaniment. Yeah, he sticks to that kind of dancey sort of um, rhythm in his mel- in his playing. Okay, so he's outlining that quite a bit. This is a fairly long movement. It's six minutes, and indeed, it has a lot of solo ideas for the violin. The soloist gets another completely solo cadenza where he plays some difficult-sounding double stops in figuration. Impressive in its harshness, on the double stops as well. And then finally, we get to the end of the album, Michel Corrette, Concerto Comique, number 25. Number 25. He wrote a lot of these in G minor. Title, subtitle, Les Sauvages et la Fustenberg. All right. This is for two violins, flute, flute, viola, cello, double bass, and harpsichord. So we're going to have a little different uh, texture to this one. This was originally written as an entracte or a kind of intermission for the Comédie Française. Um, Cornette, or Corrette arranged them the two then very famous melodies for this, uh, making them into virtuoso variation movements. The middle movement is the melody for another popular song of the time. It's not really a concerto. And, well, let's get to that. The first movement is titled uh, Les Sauvages, The Savages. This is, a vir- this is virtuosic. The violin is constantly showing off bowing technique and figuration. And it's a set of variations, so you get those like th- that sort of slideshow kind of quality again, where the background texture keeps changing, and the violin has to respond to that. The second movement, Condensé à mer et plaire, when one knows uh, how to love and please. Ooh, um, Andante. Oh, yeah. This has a. <laughs> oh yeah, it doesn't sound oh, like yeah. that though. <laughs> no, not really. No, it's, it's not a Barry White different. song. It's uh, yeah, it definitely it's is. It's kind of the opposite of a Barry White song, really. It's got a bouncy, interestingly scored, slowish movement led by sparkling harpsichord and thumping pizzicato strings that really leap out of the mm. speakers. I mean, geez, it's like they're almost like uh, kind of like it's like being shot with an air gun. <laughs> <laughs> it's so present. Uh, the melody features a flute. Uh, strings are very present and leap out from the speakers during the pizzicato, as I said. This is a pretty saccharine melody, uh, but the orchestration gives it charm. All right. Kind of figures it would be a popular tune of the time. Third movement, Le Furstenberg Allegro. This moves like a concerto grosso at the beginning. The whole ensemble states the themes. Then the violins come in and play virtuosically. Again, it's a set of variations, and they pass by like... Um, a slideshow. 
I, I like that metaphor. Okay, some nifty timbral f- touches can be heard in between phrases, and it ends on a cadence, though not an emphatic one, a cadence to the tonic. Um, it just kind of sort of fades into the cadence, and the album just kind of ends like that. That's the end of the album. It doesn't end on anything emphatic. It's kind of interesting. So anyway, I would recommend this. Um, it's a little bit of a history lesson. Mm. It's not as bright and sunny as a lot of your favorite Baroque works like by composers like Vivaldi and um, you know Corelli, for that matter. Um, it's just it's a different kind of Baroque, really. Mm. A little more, uh, I wouldn't say laid back, but it's sort of um, a little more pastel-y, maybe. I don't know. But uh, a little, little less bounced, but very enjoyable nonetheless. Yeah, I said enjoyable, uh, sometimes surprising, uh, yeah. because you have, you know, if you listen to a lot of Vivaldi and um, Haydn, Bach, uh, you know, you're going to have a concept, but you haven't heard these pieces before, probably. So there'd be some things, especially those cadenzas that <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, you know, be really different from what you're used to. And, you know, overall, they're more Italian sounding, but there are some French influences, you know, naturally that these uh, composers had and were trying to appeal to. So uh, it kind of has uh, dual influences uh, into a f- mostly familiar format of uh, Baroque concerto. Uh, so not completely Italian, but with a little kind of French twist on it, uh, but definitely enjoyable the musicianship is great. The, re- the recording is super grated, clear. There's so, a little grated Parmesan cheese on there, but a bit, uh, it's yeah. mostly, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's mostly camembert. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's um, fun to listen to with a few surprises uh, to uh, draw you in even deeper. So I enjoyed it a lot. All right. Next, another sort of um, album that became a sort of history lesson for me anyway. Um, Baritenor. This is by um, Michael Spires, who is labeled as the Baritenor. I think they um, need a saxophone or- like this too. Like, yeah, a know, baritenor for someone saxophone. who just that doesn't want to cool. It doesn't want to bring two instruments to the gig and just say, "Look, I've got my Baritenor. And <laughs> here I go." You know? Basically, that's what he's saying here. Uh, he's got a voice that does both, right? So really incredible. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, he um, he's pretty much known as a tenor. Um, right. And then this album came out, and uh, and I was thinking, geez, the range that this guy has is really incredible. But it turns out that uh, this isn't as unusual as we think it is. In his, he wrote he himself, Michael Spires wrote the. Mm. Uh, he's American, by the way. I should mention, born in uh, uh, Missouri. And studied in Vienna, right? Um, so uh, an American uh, American tenor. This and, is uh, to wanna... be contrasted with the barely tenor or the other singers like uh, barely man enough and yeah, barely uh, man enough, barely, barely, white, barely man enough, barely white, uh, barely white, <laughs> barely man enough. Wrote that song. I write the songs, right? No, I actually, he didn't it, write yeah. it. He just sang it. Yeah, that's But right. he sang that song. He didn't write he, it. That was a Bruce Johnston song, I, I think. I think he ripped off Rachmaninoff in one of his tunes, too, didn't he? He yeah. did. He could have yeah. been magic. I still remember that because yeah. I was a kid in the 70s and I heard all those <laughs> records when they were on the radio. <laughs> but this I still remember not, them like yesterday. Spires is not barely anything. He's more than uh, more than either. So, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Very interesting, yeah. 
Okay, now the thing about him is he first came to my attention as a tenor um, on an album that came out in 2020 called um, Ros- by Ro- of works by Rossini called Amici e Rivali, and he was on that with another tenor, Lawrence Brownlee, and um, so there but there are two tenors, but he's going into the baritone range on that record too, but he's just not labeled as that. Mm. And that was a pretty incredible record. You should hear it if you like operatic singing. But this is a quite a uh, a history lesson for me. Now, it turns out that, okay, uh, what a baritoner is, it's a, it's a tenor whose range can extend into the baritone range or the opposite, a baritone who can get up into the tenor range a little bit. Um, Spires is a tenor, basically, and he's uh, got notes into the baritone range. Now, he has to um, apparently carefully choose these roles. I mean, he can't, I don't think he can do all of the baritone um, roles. And in fact, some of the ones he sings here, perhaps he can't reach some of the lower tessitura um, if he sang the entire opera, you know, as a baritone mm-hmm. in a baritone role. Now, one of the things that the notebooks, the notes say is that the whole idea of having a, a cutoff between a tenor and a baritone really came about in the 20th century. It's kind of a new idea. It's this system um, when, they have, right? That- yeah, it's a system, but it, and it also had something to do with um, the size of orchestras in the 20th century. They got really big, so you needed more power to sing. And I think if you were going to sing in that entire range, um, you weren't going to last very long as a mm-hmm. singer. Uh, I'm guessing. I mean, I'm not a singer myself, so I can't really tell you. But um, there, there were all sorts of roles like this, and as we're going to see, um, throughout the uh, classical and Baroque eras. And then in the Romantic era, um, things started to change when composers like Wagner started making all these unprecedented demands on singers, and they had to really put out a lot of power. And I think about then they sort of decided, okay, this is going to be this, 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 this type of voice and this type of voice, and we're going to write to that. But the composers would just write what they wanted to hear, and like the singers would have to figure out a way to do it, I guess, <laughs> back in the day. All right. You just have to wear tighter pants or looser pants or something when you're right. singing them. Yeah. Okay, now this program is very interesting. He's, it basically goes in... Um, it's a recital, uh, really, of what he can do. Yeah, but it starts in the past. Yeah, this is a recital mm-hmm. of what he can do. And um, it's set up by contrast, tenor, baritone, baritone, tenor, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it starts in uh, the Baroque era and per, more or less goes in uh, chronological order into the early 20th century. But it's not exact. you know, it's not exactly there it backtracks once or twice. Anyway, let's go through this program. This is a well-organized program to show off the various facets of this voice. And it's a nice-sounding voice, too. I really enjoy oh, listening yeah. to it. Really warm, um, clear. Um, enunciation is great. You can understand all the words. Um, and uh, just rich, to the baritone range. And he's American. Stuff. Amazing. Go, go figure. Okay. Yeah. And he's from Missouri, too. And he's from Missouri, too. Yeah. Amazing. Ain't much opera in Missouri. Maybe there is. <laughs> Could I don't be. know. It, America always surprises me. I don't know. Anyway, first is by Mo, first works by Mozart from his opera Idomeneo of 1781, Act Two, Scene Three, Number Twelve B, Fuor del Mar, and this is sung by Idomeneo, a role for tenor. Um, he sounds like a lyric tenor in this. Um, there's a little darkness to the voice, so you can kind of tell there's something else there. It's always nice to have a tenor with a little darkness in the voice, so he can get kind of fierce if he has to. You know, you're not really sure of his pure motives if he's got that. Um, it's a little heavier than a traditional tenor here. And remember, he's 
basically billed as a tenor. Um, but it's got a nice uh, spinto quality to it. So he sings like an Italian, really, when he sings. Um, when I when I say that, what I mean is he sings the kind of roles that would sound good in with the kind of voice that would sound good in Verdi or Puccini mm. or those Verismo operas. We'll get to that, though. Second, Mozart again, Le Nozze di Figaro. In this case, he's singing Conte d'Alma Viva, a baritone. So now he's in the lower range of his voice. So we're getting the full range in these two uh, mm. different areas, except that we're not getting them all together yet. He's, he's, um, he's organized it so that we'll constantly be uh, surprised. Hai uh, già vinto la causa. Um, this is a baritone range. It's identifiably the same voice. Uh, in this case, one notices the brightness of the lower tenor range, but it's a little surprising. Uh, he's got some range, very clear singing, and he's more lyrical than the average baritone, and not as weighty in voice, at least not here. He does get weighty in voice later. Um, next, Mozart, Don Giovanni, okay, and this is a baritone role too. He's Don Giovanni in this one. This is uh, De Vieni alla Finestra. This is amazing. Here we hear the full darkness of the baritone voice. We didn't hear that in the previous aria. Uh, the previous song was aggressive. This is a love song, and it's seductive, and he gets a light, romantic, loving quality to his voice. He's versatile in performance as well as voice. Okay, so by now we figure out what he's doing here. This is a real tease. Like he's showing <laughs> us these different qualities of his voice, a different quality of his voice in each aria. Mm. Okay, so this is kind of... Uh, it's a really interesting program. We just want to hear more. What's what's he going to do? All right, we're moving on to the year 1799, Etienne Nicolas Mehul's opera Ario Dante. Act 3, scene 1. Oh Dieu, écoutez ma prière. This is uh, sung by Edgard, who is listed as a baritoner. Um, okay. Um, by the way, if you buy the CD for this, um, all of the texts are in the book, but for some reason, the, the French arias, they're not listed in the order that they are on the, um, the CD because they, they eliminated Italian when they put the French arias oh. in. So they didn't translate these into Italian. So they made three columns instead of two. It's really weird. You have to keep going back and forth in the booklet. Uh, I don't approve, Erato, but um, <laughs> there you go. Maybe it's saved paper. Okay, this is said to be an actual baritone role. It starts squarely in the baritone range. And uh, this, I've, I don't know this opera. He's a father whose daughter is condemned to death. How often does that happen? It happens often in opera. Hmm. If you're a parent, just be grateful you're not an opera parent, <laughs> meaning a character in an opera, a parent who's a character in an opera, because all sorts of horrible things will happen to your children. He goes a bit into the tenor range in this one, so I guess it's got some high tenor notes. Uh, next, Gaspare Spontini, La Vestale, Act 3, Scene 1. Um, Italian composer writing a French aria, Que je vous que la prête, sung by Licinius, a tenor, a desperate aria. A man is vowing to protect his love from death. Death happens a lot in operas. <laughs> okay, number six. Okay. Rossini, Il Barbiere di Siviglia, The Barber oh. of Seville. This is such a famous aria. Every baritone has to sing this. Um, it's a famous cheerful aria. It's the one that goes, Figaro, Figaro, Figaro. Is that, that one? Yeah. Okay. Okay, Figaro. Um, this is, again, we heard La Nozza di Figaro. This is the, an earlier version of Figaro in Barber Seville. Um, La Nozza di Figaro, the, the marriage of Figaro comes later in the uh, set of plays. Um, so... 
before the Count Alviva has married Rosina, here he's helping her mar him marry her. This is a showpiece for the baritone, very popular. Um, um, the voice is squarely in the baritone range. Uh, it lacks it. He lacks a bit of weight here. He's kind of singing it more like a lighter kind of tenor role, but he's very agile. This 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 uh, this is one of those um, arias where it's a, a heavy voice that um, has to sing in a light manner because all of the um, uh, the figuration or the uh, the little vocal stunts he has to do uh, require agility, and that's hard for a low voice to do. But again, he has he's really more of a tenor, so he's perfect for this. Um, he goes very high into the tenor range of some of his <laughs> ad libs, and he goes for a real comic effect in the famous Figaro, Figaro section, where he sings falsetto to imitate women calling him, because he's the barber civilian. He's in the aria, he's talking about how everybody loves him, everybody needs favors from him, and he helps people get together and stuff like that. He's basically explaining who he is. Um, and he sounds good doing it, too. A lot of times mm -hmm. when tenors do this, they kind of they kind of sound silly and they want the comic effect but here he gets that but he actually sounds good doing it it's amazing mm. and he also gets this thin high tenor for to imitate the young men who need his favors too there's a lot of talent in this guy this really knocked me out uh, this particular aria this particular rendition of this aria uh, track six uh, be sure to hear that Okay, next, Rossini Otello. Now, we know the famous Verdi opera Otello. There was an earlier one by Rossini as well. Mm. And uh, here we hear Act 1, Scene 1, Number 2. Ah, si per voi già sento. Et premio maggior di questo, amor dirade il nembo. So he's, it's um, several things put together. Here we have uh, Otello. He's a tenor role here. And uh, Iago is also a tenor. And he's sung by uh, Sangbe Shoi. I guess that's how it would be in French. Um, for tenor, but you notice the baritone quality of the voice in this one. He gets some nice high notes off and dips down to the baritone range for some ad-libbing. That's a big wow there, too. And there's an impressive high note at about the 4 minute 30 second mark. Listen to that. That's a tenor note. Next, Adolf Adam. Uh, Adolf Adam is famous for writing the ballet Giselle and the Christmas tune, Oh Holy Night which he called Minuit Chrétien. Okay, that's the original French title. This is um, his, um, a song, this is from the opera, or operetta, Le Postillon de Longjumeau. Le Postillon de Longjumeau. Um, the, uh, the post, I don't know, the post um, truck of Longjumeau, okay? Act one, number three. Mes amis, écoutez l'histoire. My, my friends, listen to the story. Sung by Capelou, a tenor. This is a fairy tale story about a coachman, a seducer, who is said to have married a queen. Uh, it's a lyric tenor aria. He's able at high notes to completely throw off the darker baritone quality of his voice. Again, amazing. Um, the thing is, by this point, I was like just amazed at what he has done so far that I'm just waiting for the next thing. Yeah. I'm almost not listening to the different arias and his interpretations of them because it was such a wow. You know, the whole album is really mm. like that. All right, next track, Gaetano Donizetti. Okay, so we're in the bel canto. Uh, <laughs> the bel canto era here. Bel canto, beautiful singing. Not to be confused with uh, the Broadway style of singing, which is known as Can Belto. That's a joke. <laughs> she can belto. Okay. Belt him out. Belt him out. 
Okay, this is from La Fille du Regiment, a pretty famous art, uh, comic opera by him. Uh, act 1, scene 11. Ah, mes amis, quel jour de fête pour mon âme. Uh, this is a recitative and uh, aria, I guess. This is sung by Tonio, a tenor. The French version of the opera, I, I'm not sure if there's an Italian version of this. Okay. But a lightish piece, it's a lightish piece for tenor, again with some impressive high notes toward the end. Final tonic note ending. And it sounds like an ending too. Okay, now we get to Giuseppe Verdi, Il Trovatore. Uh, the Seeker. Or the, fa- the Finder, I guess. Act 2, Scene 3. Tutto è deserto. Il balen del suo sorriso. The rainbow of your smile, of her smile. This is sung by Il Conte di Luna who's a baritone. This is deep in the baritone range. Um, here he has the weight for this role. It's, it's, it's this real darkness and weight to this voice. Uh, good contrast in the previous track. You, you want to notice this, by the way, the, the program. Tenor to baritone, light to dark. There's all sorts of contrast between these, um, these different arias. This is a really well-formed program. Beautiful breath control in legato singing on this track, too, or in, in this number. Okay, track 11, Amboise Thomas, Hamlet, 1859 to 1866, um, act, and revised later. Act 2, scene 7, C'est un croyant revoir, followed by Auvin, Disciple la Tristesse. O Wine, Take Away the Sadness, sung by Hamlet, a baritone. Uh, we have some other singers on this. Horatio is a bass, sung by Fabien Gachy, very satisfying fine satisfying, very low voice. He's a baritone, but he's singing a bass role. And Marcellus is a tenor sung by Nicholas Kuhn. Um, this is mostly in the baritone range. Appealing aria, rather unknown. This is a good opera, by the way. You might want to check it out. I have a, I saw a video of this. Ambroise Thomas. Next, Jacques Offenbach, a name we know. This is one of his most famous operas, Le Comte d'Offman. Act 1, Tales of Hoffman. Act 1, Scene 4, Va pour Kleinzach. Hoffmann is a tenor in this, and uh, there's also Nathanael, tenor sung by Mario Montalbano. And there's a chorus as well. A lot of ack, ack sounds in this one. Ack, ack, ack. <laughs> it kind of put me in mind of that Billy Joel song. A Cadillac, ack, 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 ack. What's that, moving out, right? Yeah. <laughs> one wonders if um, Billy knew this opera. I don't know. It's a tenor aria, and he has some high notes, but gets an appropriate darkness for this aria. Okay, next, here he is, the big man himself, Richard Wagner, the one who really pushed voices to extremes. Uh, this is from Lohengrin. Act 3, scene 3, Au Baud Longtemps. This is the French version of this of this opera. There is a French and a German version. Uh, Lohengrin is a tenor. And we're in held in tenor territory here, heroic tenor. This is a French version of the opera, some big ringing tones. And this one is Lohengrin sings about what it means to serve the Holy Grail, which is what this opera is about. It's kind of an Arthurian legend. Next, one of my favorite operas, Ruggero Leoncavallo, Pagliacci. This is the prologue, the very beginning. Si può, signore, signori, sung by Tonio, the clown. He's a baritone. Um... This is Verismo opera, rich baritone tone, and real drama here as Tonio narrates. Oh, by the way, in this opera, it ends with Tonio killing um, his wife and her lover on stage while they're doing a Commedia dell'arte performance. And the last words of the of the opera are, he says to the audience, La Commedia, after he kills them all, La Commedia 
è finita. It means the comedy is over. I'm looking for an opportunity in my life to say that and walk out of the room. It, it won't be because I murdered somebody. Hopefully without a yeah, homicide. Yeah, yeah, yeah no okay, homicide yeah. will be no allowed. Homicide, but maybe yeah, I'll, okay. I'll quit my job or something when this podcast gets huge. <laughs> yeah, I'll just go in there and say, La Comedia è finita, and just get out. <laughs> That's not in this area, though. Okay, next, Franz Lehar and his most famous um, operetta, Die Lustige Witwe, which is the uh, Merry Widow. Uh, act one, number four, O Vaterland, du machst bei Tag. And uh, I can't even see this. Uh, da geh ich zu Maxim. I'm going to Maxim's. Um, this is sung by Danilo, who's a tenor or lyric baritone. Perfect for Michael Spires. Mm. Here he's very much a tenor. This is really the first time we're hearing him sing in German, too. Um, it's a thinner tone than the previous baritone track. What we're hearing in this program is his chameleonic ability to completely change voice the way actors change personality. And uh, so by now, we've kind of figured that out. Um, this is a light piece, and he sings in German here. Okay. Next, Ravel, Maurice Ravel, Le Espagnol. This is one of only two operas and that Ravel wrote, and they're both very short, only an hour long. Um, scene 10, Voilà ce que j'appelle une femme charmante. Sung by Ramiro, a baritone. This is quiet and rather brief. It's touching. It's more of a meditation. Next, a rather surprise track. Something from Carl Orff's Carmen Burana, 1935. Dunox et Omnia. It's an odd choice. It's in Latin. And uh, this allows Spires to go high in the tenor range with tender, quiet, plaintive notes. It also goes low into the baritone range. This has like an extraordinary um, range. And then last, we have an aria by Eric Wolfgang Korngold. This is in German as well. Um, Gluck, das mir verbleib. And this is better known as Marietta's lead. It's from the opera Die Tote Stadt from 1920, which, by the way, there's a fantastic Blu-ray performance of the, performance of this on Blu-ray out. Um, just look for something Detoch Dot released last year uh, if, you, if you're interested in this it's a beautiful opera um, it's normally a duet for soprano and tenor and as a concert aria a soprano sings both parts but I guess a tenor can too well he, he does anyway here <laughs> this is a duet in German uh, he starts it in the tenor voice it's a beautiful aria with very rom romantic lyrics the characters thinking back to love in their youth Spires doesn't do anything to distinguish between the two singers. He just sings it in the tenor range. And I just said, this guy is a chameleon. Gorgeous voice, very enjoyable, warm, uh, winning personality. I'm sure a very entertaining singer to see in an opera or at a live recital. Um, he sounds good in the entirety of his range, which is very wide. Uh, one of the reasons I think we're hearing this is that he's in his 40s now. And in your 40s is the time when you really push your voice to its limits because once you're in your 50s, it's, it's going to go downhill anyway. So this is where singers really, you know, they start singing Wagnerian roles or really doing crazy stuff. You don't want to do this in your 20s and 30s, which I guess is why he was a tenor up until now. Anyway, this is really astonishing. Uh, if you're an opera lover, you really need to hear this. It's, uh, it's really something. Barrett Tenor on the Erato label by Michael Spires. Yeah, even I like this, and I'm not an opera lover by any means, um, but I found the program uh, engaging because of the variety of material and then just what he's able to do with his voice. And 
on top of that, even if you're not a big opera fan, uh, what comes through in his singing is uh, his level of enjoyment too. Uh, this is a program that's you know it's long and it's as if it's a recital. Uh, you know, it's some well-known pieces and then some more obscure things uh, mixed in that he's picked uh, to showcase his talents. But his joy of singing comes through on everything. So there's nothing sort of staid or very um, mechanical about it. Uh, he sounds like he's having a great time when he's singing everything. Uh, and so the joy of his singing comes through, which to me, in any style of music, that's a requisite quality of something that's going to catch yeah, my attention I agree. and make me want to listen to it. And I, so his sort of enthusiasm for the music drew me in on all the pieces in here. And that to me is, you know, essential mark of a great singer or musician for that matter. But uh, so I was, you know, not only amazed with his, you know, technical ability, but uh, his emotional uh, expression and exuberance uh, was very admirable. So uh, amazing yeah. singer. Yeah, by the way, if anyone challenges you to um, uh, write a one-word review for this album, oh. it's very easy. Wow. <laughs> wow, yeah. Because like, that's kind of how I felt listening to it. You need some extra things in there, like umlauts or something, to make Maybe. draw it out. Yeah, something, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I, yep. I just kind of wanted to... I, I wish I could do that if I wrote for a newspaper. Review this album. Wow, wow. that's it. Get my paycheck. Yeah. Be fired the next day. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> okay. Last in the <laughs> last, like we're almost done, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> because this is an album by Igor Levitt. Okay. Pianist. Yes. Um, the Iron Russian Man of German. Piano Recordings. Yeah. The Iron Man of Piano Recordings. Okay. <laughs> now, I wonder how he records these because this has to be over a period of time. Ooh. This is because it just seems like. You can't do this anyway. Anyway, this is his most recent album on DSCH. Now, what DSCH is, is the uh, motif that uh, Dmitry Shostakovich used to indicate himself in his mm. compositions. <clears throat> it's also going to be the name of a piece that we hear on this by another composer, Ronald Stevenson, but we'll get to that in due time. All right, now, I'm not going to go... This is... <laughs> like can. every Igor Levitt recording... Um, he picks a massive work to record, and then he also chooses another massive work to accompany <laughs> that. Yes. He just can't do... His first recording ever on Sony Classical was um, the Bach Partitas, which is pretty impressive. And then after that, it might have been in reverse order, then he did the five last um, Beethoven piano sonatas, which are kind of... Tough to put across, let's say. Hmm. Um, so he's he goes for these mammoth challenges right from the beginning of his career. After that, I think he did... Um, he recorded the Goldberg Variations by Bach, the Diabelli Variations by Beethoven, and Rzevsky's, American composer Frederick Rzevsky's, um uh, variations on the Workers' Tune, The People United Will Never Be Defeated, and released them all as a single three-disc album. Most people would just put out the Goldberg variations, yeah, right? Yeah, or the Diabelli right. variations. But no, we're going to get those two works plus something new, okay? But <laughs> And that's what he's doing here. I, I'm amazed that Sony Classical allows this, actually. They must really respect him. 
But they're pretty uh, interesting uh, programs. Now, in this case, we have two giant works. Uh, one of them is um, Shostakovich's 24 Preludes and Fugues, which are rarely recorded. I was so grateful to get to hear them here. Um, and the other work is um, a work called On DSCH, which is uh, by the Scottish composer, Scottish 20th century composer, Ronald Stevenson, um, um, who, is, um, who wrote it for it, um, Shostakovich. Anyway, let's start. Oh, I'm not going to go through all of these because it's. I'm not going to talk about all 24 Preludes and Fugues by Shostakovich. But let's just say that years ago, th- these were written in 1950 to 1951. Um, these are okay. If we think about these as fugues, they're, they're, now they're 20th century fugues, but they're modeled on Bach, but they do have Shostakovich type, um, you know, ideas in them. Okay, so there's a lot of um, irony and sort of this comic effect. We don't really hear much of that in box fugues. They tend to be pretty academic, you know, but not in a boring way. All right. Levitt's approach. Now, last week we heard um, Daniil Trifonov play a box art of fugue, and we were pretty amazed by his ability to um, distinguish the four voices. You know, mm. all four voices were all clear, and it's a very non-traditional way to play Bach. Traditionally, the four voices should be played at about the same level. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're not really supposed to pull them out because you're generally playing them on a harpsichord when you, where you can't do that. Um, Levitt, interestingly enough, in a recording where he really could have used the Trifonov approach because it's a modern work or a 20th century work, um, goes for the uh, Bach style. He uh, all the voices are equally played. I mean, you could distinguish them, but uh, he goes for like a, a, a more uniform sort of texture, which I thought was interesting. Um, he uses p- pedal, which is you know, of course no problem in a 20th century work like this. Um, the lines are all distinguishable as as they're written to be, and um, these are a little different than box works because they go through all the keys in uh, fifths and the relative minors, not chromatically as box go. Box mm. starts C and then C sharp, D, D sharp, you know, like C A minor, D, C sharp, C sharp, you know, like that. These go by the circle of fifths. C is first and then A minor, then G major, E minor, etc. until we get back to the end. I heard these works long ago on a Melodia recording from Russia, and uh, it was a bad recording, but a good performance, as was often the case with those old Melodia recordings. And I really liked these. I, I found them very calming, and I bet they were calming for Shostakovich himself to write, because he was having a lot of trouble in the Soviet Union at the time. He had right. been uh, called out for some uh, subver- what the Soviet Union saw as subversive works, and... Uh, <laughs> And I guess he went into himself and wrote these and um, got – he he played them himself. They weren't well received, but then he got a famous uh, Russian pianist to play them, and they were better received then. And they've gone on – they're really fantastic works. I really love them. What I, um, what I think with these, they're really fun to listen to because um, these yeah. are like bite-sized compositions, and there's a lot of yeah. variety – yeah, in them. more more I, than I think, in Bach, I should yeah, mention. Yeah, that's why I think you can play these fairly straight without mm. focusing on individual voices because of the variety that Shostakovich has worked into them. Uh, they're all very, very different. And yeah. um, what I found, I mentioned to you, uh, actually, listeners, uh, if you go to the Wikipedia article 
uh, about these. You know, Wikipedia yeah. can be hit and miss as a music reference, but for this uh, particular work, there's a very nice um, summary for each set of uh, Prelude and Fugue uh, in each key, which sort of outline what the techniques of composition and give you a little bit of insight into what Shostakovich uh, was doing well technically they explain it but then maybe some insight into why uh, he was doing a certain uh, approach for each one uh, which I found is a nice little kind of like um, you know short note reference uh, to keep you focused on what you're hearing uh, for example um, in the D flat major one uh, there's kind of a, a opening theme and it sounds a bit like we wish you a merry christmas right uh, right you'd hear that <laughs> and interestingly enough the date of the composition is december 20th so uh it could be he may very you know, well have been thinking that, that. plus yeah. we wish you a merry christmas is a british uh, tune so right. he would have um kind of had to have take gotten that on a trip to england at some yeah. point or something well, i'm sure he was aware of the tune uh and then oh yeah it, see the thing is i don't you're not really um I don't really know what people knew in the Soviet Union, but he did get to leave, so yeah. he got to meet composers. And, but then, that's in the know. prelude, but the in the fugue is completely different. It's chromatic yeah. and atonal, and uh, I think, it, well, at least uh, the uh, Wikipedia has a reference to Stevenson, who we hear later, uh, but said that this may have been uh, Shostakovich's commentary sardonic commentary on serial music um, because he makes sure to work through uh, all of the yeah. uh, you know semitones uh, in that work as a as a technique right. there so you know, he, all, he ends tonally though in that you, right, you know, right. So, but it's not um, really a solid you know, kind of ending yeah at the very end there's a sort of tonic dominant harmony uh that you hear that, but although you're not really sure because you've gone on this little journey, um, but that's how they are. They're these little, you know, bite-sized th- little worlds of their own, um, and so that makes it really interesting. Um, and rather than needing um, extended attention to listen to, you know, uh, a whole symphony or a concerto, here you've got these, you know movements around the circle of fifths and each one is its sort of own little world um and what is he trying to do right here and so it's really interesting to try to understand what Shostakovich was trying to do and then you know Levitt's actual performance of that and what he's uh, highlighting and showing there so I, I found it kind of interesting again you may need to break this up because there's a lot to uh it's on two so discs. At least yeah. two listening sessions, I think, um, if you want to focus uh, on Although these. Although they're so points. compelling that I got through quite a few of them. I was on the yeah. second disc, um, you know, and I think I gave up uh, halfway through that. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I mean, I listened to the whole thing the next, you know, the rest of the next right. day. But uh, what I'm saying is that day I was like so compelled by all of this. It was so interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I just want to mention just to sum the uh, Shostakovich works up. This massive um, work. Um, this is really the best performance of these works that I've ever heard. I've only heard three. I think uh, there was that Russian pianist, and I think Oli Mustonen recorded them too. Mm. Um, but I'm not sure if it was him. It might have been someone else. Um, and they were good. But this this is this really is has the stamp of authority on it on them. They're just so beautifully realized. Um, 
the whole set of works is mostly beautiful. Uh, an oasis of civilization because it's it's a take on Bach and Bach is kind of like a cornerstone of really Western civilization and really world right. civilization in general I would say um, with some contrasting jokey or harsh works thrown into the Shostakovich um, I ended this thinking ah civilization how wonderful it is <laughs> okay it, it really did make me feel calm and just uh, really good and just really happy I, I was also oh. drinking whiskey when I we might need to use that in the title. That might have helped. We might need civilization. civilization. And I think we have symbols, too. So those two words could go together. Symbols and civilization? Symbols of Sim civilization. That could work. Oh, that could be good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Keep we need a title for this. Yeah, that could so be good. Write that down. Write that down now write before you forget. Write that down because uh, okay. I don't want to forget it. We'll forget. Because we we are a team of two here. We need we need a, we need a guy like... Uh, a secretary. Jamie, like Joe Rogan has. Jamie. We need a Jamie. Some somebody to work the computer and any volunteers? <laughs> adult music podcast at gmail. Volunteers, please. We can't pay you. <laughs> Not yet anyway. Not yet. Maybe one day. All right. Um Okay, so uh yeah, some okay. How much we have I was, I was thinking and I wrote this down after listening. We have how much we have to thank Bach for the form and inspiration for this set of works, and to Shostakovich yeah. for this particular set. Really beautiful. I just loved it so much. Worth it for this set of works. And the if you buy the CD, it costs about as much as a double album. So you get the third. Um, CD for free, and that's just as well because the, C <laughs> the third CD is um, well, Ronald Stevenson's. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, um, at least Sony makes this one available on streaming, so you can listen to it and decide if you want to buy it. Because yeah, they're a little bit stingy on some of their other. Uh, yeah, works. it's funny. They they really they put the uh, we did the Christmas one too, the Christmas harp one, right. And the Christmas piano; those were both on streaming too. Right. But so forget really, about like any Yo Yo Ma recordings or anything like that. Um, oh yeah, you got to cough up if you want to hear that. So, yeah. Anyway, CD three, uh, or <laughs> the, or the the massively long listening list if you're <laughs> listening yes. on uh, Spotify or somewhere like that, is uh, Ronald Stevenson's um, tribute to Shostakovich um, Pasakalia uh, on DSCH. Okay, now if this were the only work on this album, uh, this would be a, a major pass. I, I'll 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 be right up front. I didn't like this work at <laughs> all. Um, it was just torture to listen to. It's an hour and fifteen minutes, and um, it's called Pasacalia. It's a single movement of an hour and fifteen minutes of nonstop music. So the poor pianist was really put through his paces here, and. Um, what DSCH is, okay, it's Shostakovich's musical signature, and it's um, D, E-flat, C, B. So those yeah. are two semitones. So they're kind of harsh sounding, and they're very easy to um, identify. Now, when you normally hear them, Shostakovich will put them in his um, symphonic works, and there's something about the whole timbre of the symphony where they they're not they're never harsh. They're all, they're always kind of soft, but they're noticeable because of those semitones. Um, it's 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 generally harsh sounding. Here though, Stevenson starts this work 
by just hammering them out. And man, you, you hear it the first time, you can't ever possibly forget it. You don't really need it banged into your head again. But we get about an hour of that. We we keep hearing this theme again and again and again mm. and again. It was such a, some kind of like this annoying person just talking to me and repeating the same thing. <laughs> you don't know anyone like that, again. do you? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Oh, gee. Let me let me let me uh, yeah. count them. Make a list. <laughs> we get the list out. Um. Okay, so this is divided. It's divided into three parts, but it's it's really one movement. And there are a lot of little sections in it that this passes through. Oh, some of these are so pretentious. Can we think of some adjectives to describe this work? Bombastic, exhausting. pretentious, <laughs> exhausting. Uh, oh, God. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm being mean. I will say this. If you're one of these people, and I know you're out there, if, that just loves rarities of piano music, just works that are just kind of nobody ever plays uh this is one of those and this is something you'll inevitably have to hear if you're one of these people um i do like rarities of piano music but i didn't like this one i'll just say that okay anyway so we start with um part one pars prima he uh calls it in um i guess latin that is um we hear the dsch theme twice bursting out at the beginning um, the movement proceeds in a big granitic manner. By the way, most of this work is loud. There are very few quiet passages <laughs> in it. The pianist is just hammering away at those at those uh, keys, mostly in octaves. I heard a lot of octaves throughout this work. Um, they're fun to play, but boy. Um, uh, it's a virtuosic movement. Not terribly tuneful. In fact, this entire work isn't very tuneful. Um, the first movement, the first part, I should say, requires it recalls the bigness of Busoni and other 20th century romantics. Um, textures change after a brief workout. Again, this uh, proceeds more like a set of musical panels or variations than a sonata. I, I couldn't identify the sonata co the, the parts of this. I don't think it's a sonata, really. Mm. But it's loud, okay? Then we get a waltz and rondo form. We hear DSCH in uh, three, three, four time. Um, you know, it's a rondo theme. A short episode played at the highest end of the piano. Then we get an entire Baroque suite thrown into this <laughs> massive work. Prelude, saraband, jig, saraband, minuet, jig, gavotte, and polonaise. Um, after that, a pibroch, uh, titled Lament for the Children, which is a Scottish bagpipe theme here adapted for the piano. Uh, the bagpipe qualities are done away with here. It's kind of light, spacious, pretty melody. And it ends with an outburst chord, then DSCH is played quietly in the bass. There's an episode, variations in an arabesque kind of form. A nocturne. Recalling, I guess, um, Chopin, lots of arabesque-type ornamentation. Then we get to the second section, which is called Pas Altera, which I guess means alternate part, not part two. Starts with a reverie fantasy, which starts with haunted arpeggiated chords. After that comes a fanfare, and then uh, forebodings, alarm, glimpse of a war vision. Um, there are heavy chords with the Pagiaturas to begin the work, which gains an urgency as it speeds up, very non-tonal. I didn't say atonal, non-tonal. It doesn't seem to really have a center. <laughs> uh, it comes towards the end with the chord-like chords playing DSCH again. 
Tenth track, Variations on Peace, Bread, and the Land, which is a workers, a communist workers' song. Uh, it proceeds at a march rhythm, and uh, quick repeated notes uh, in threes play uh, this melody. We get bell-like chords, or chords alternating between the lower and higher ends of the piano. All dissolves into figuration. There's a lot of pounding. Track 11, Symphonic March. How heavy-handed does this have to be? March. <laughs> you know, a worker song. Okay. Doesn't sound like a march, though. It's more like a heavy-handed waltz with uh, marching one-twos in the bass. So it's kind of like one-two in the bass, and then there's sort of like a waltzy sort of uh, melody above it. Um, this dissolves into trills and thirds in the upper part of the piano. Then the main theme returns. There's another episode. Then a fandango, which is a Spanish dance. Um, theme develops in the bass. There's a lot of figuration in the bass end of the piano and lots of repeated notes, like repeating guitar strings. So it's kind of like got that Spanish quality to it. Next is titled Pedal Point to Emergent Africa. We have to include Africa in this work because it wants to encompass the whole world. Um, this has rumblings that are created by the pianist's hands pounding on the bass strings inside the piano. Open-handed. He's giving them an open-handed smack. And there's a melodic figure in the bass, which he's playing via the keys as all this is happening. It does sound like something ominous emerging over the horizon. Uh, central episode, etudes, ridiculously fast, what sound like arpeggios cascading from the treble to the bass register. Uh, notice DSCH in the emphatic bass notes. Then we get variations in C minor. Um, after that, pars tercia, the third part. An adagio, tribute to Bach, triple fugue, overground bass. Are you exhausted yet? I'm exhausted just talking uh, about this. Forget about it, listening to it, though. Um, the opening notes sound like a bit like the opening of the famous Toccata and Fugue in D minor by Bach. You gotta get that flavor. And the profile of the theme recalls the whole theme. Um, subject one, Andamente, which doesn't recall Bach at all to me. It's got repeated figures playing in thirds. Subject two, B-A-C-H. So this time we hear Bach did this himself. He's using the his the letters of his name. B A I guess C would B A C and then H would be B flat, I guess. Um this gets away from D S C H and uses B A C H as its opening subject. Yeah, B A C B flat. It goes through all sorts of sections, including cascading arpeggios and staccato theme. You're a wash and bass by the end. Subject three. This is where I just threw my hands up in the air. Um, Dies ire, in memoriam, the six million. Now, the six million, of course, as we all know, right, refers to the six million who died in the Holocaust in World War II. What better way to commemorate or to um, remember the six million dead in the Holocaust than with a theme from the Catholic Mass from the Dead? <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> but Dies Ire, it's the theme is Dies Ire, Dies Ila. So you hear dun 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 dun. Okay, I'm not singing it exactly on key. Sorry, people. Okay, the, but the Dies Ire theme here is pounded out in the bass to begin, woven into the melody. Um, a quieter sec staccato section follows the chaos. And you hear the Dies Irae embedded in that. It rings out like church bells after the 4.30 mark. I feel like this movement is a little too enthusiastic to put it across as a memorial <laughs> theme. Ugh, I don't know. Those communists. 
Are they are they capable of subtlety? Are they? <laughs> I don't know. Final variations on a theme. I guess we're going to hear from one. <laughs> I, bet, I bet his message will be bombastic. Anyway, final <laughs> variations on a theme derived from the ground. Adagissimo Barocco. A final 12-minute section because you know, we haven't had enough yet. <laughs> um, the ground bass is played first. The first theme, it's all pretty slow at the beginning. A quiet theme follows a quiet theme. There's a Beethoven C minor opus 111 approach to this as the variations gradually speed up as extra notes are added to the figuration, which is what happens in the last Beethoven piano sonata. The volume starts picking up at around 745, of course, because nothing nothing in this work can possibly stay quiet. Um, it's been mostly quiet up to then. We finally arrive at granitic chords at about 9 minutes 45 seconds. It suddenly quietens inside the 11-minute mark, and the sound disappears this is an hour and 15 minutes mostly of banging and i don't mean the kind that we like (laughs) the work doesn't lack in ideas but the question is are they good ideas i really don't think so i found this work to be extremely heavy-handed one wonders what Shostakovich himself thought of it because um stevenson actually did hand it over to him at a um at a, a sort of um kind of music uh, festival they were both at. Mm. Um, he may have been flattered, but I wonder if he ever read through this the piano. Uh, these are like over-the-top pianistic excess may enjoy it, but it's not for me. I wrote that um, I wonder <laughs> this is mean. I wonder if the score was still sticky with Stevenson's enthusiasm when he handed it over to Shostakovich. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to denigrate the pianist's performance on this. He's excellent. Igor Levitt is just fantastic. Even to even attempt a work like this, it sounds like huge. I don't think there's really much you can do with it. I just didn't like it. But um, this this album is worth hearing for the Shostakovich Preludes and Fugues, which are beautifully played. Yeah, it took a lot of energy to get through the Shostakovich for me, but it was rewarding. Um, yeah, just because there's so much interesting stuff there. Oh but yeah, this, I love those. Yeah, this was more like a real endurance uh, yep. for me to listen to. So I, I wrote, it must be exhausting to play this because I was worn out by listening to it. So, oh jeez. You know, um, yeah, in one way, it, yeah. it was like hectoring to me though. The DSCH, you're yeah, constantly that's... hearing that theme. It's not really a terribly pretty theme either. Yeah, it's... and oh man. It's grounded in that, so you always have was, that I felt like sort I was of just home base to, in the head to go yeah, back constantly. to. But yeah, it, I don't know if that's enough to build all of these different ideas from. Um, so, it's a, it's an endurance of composition, performance, and listening. Um, yeah. Not particularly rewarding, as you say. So, um, I could I could live with this disc as just the two uh, Shostakovich uh, discs. Uh, yes. And, be really happy with it this this work um yeah, i tried really hard and you know as i said there are um a lot of things going on here but whether they uh add up to something that i uh, want to listen to again probably not um yeah, yeah this is one of those works though when you hear the first 10 minutes and you know there's still over an hour of it left and yeah. you already know it's not going to get any better than this. <laughs> it's just going to all be yeah. like this at best. I, I kind of had that uh, sinking feeling, and mm. I was I, I was proven to be correct. Oh boy! 
Um, anyway, yeah. so so hand, for piano enthusi- for enthusiasts of unknown piano music only. Yeah. I'm going to make a statement about this, okay? This is my least favorite uh, piece of music <laughs> that I've ever heard on this podcast. <laughs> okay. Okay? All right, we'll so we'll see if anybody could come along. <laughs> That'll, that's that's going to be my... Uh, <laughs> yeah uh that'll be we could put that on a special list uh and we already got it in january see if anyone can top it well what i want to do is i want to make a um i want to make a if we ever do a website we're, gonna, we're eventually mm-hmm. gonna have to get around to this i want to put a list of our things we like and things we don't like and i think this will be on the things can we both say we don't like yeah. this i don't know because it's something i don't like <laughs> but it's got to be something we both don't like you know, well there so, is that uh, podcast isn't it why this song sucks or something <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah we could have a, a special episode dedicated to that i don't know yeah well anyway um levitt seems to be like an endurance man, he can take on huge works uh, and get the focus to run through them right to the end with the same conviction. So I admire that. Uh, I wonder what he's going to tackle next and if three CDs will be enough. Maybe he'll need <laughs> like a five CD you know, sort he, he of case. He did put out a, a complete Beethoven piano sonatas too, yeah. uh, eventually. Something so that like was that. like multi CDs too. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. Listen to it for the Shostakovich because that one is uh, very interesting. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Highly, uh, highly recommended. Really beautiful works. Civilization. Civilization, which is what you need now. We all need that. That's right. Mm. So, um, well, we had civilization, so now it's time for symbols, I think. Hmm. Symbols. Symbols. Drums. That's right. So, shifting from classical to the jazz portion of this podcast. Uh, The theme is drummers, percussionists, masters of the drum kit. Uh, And uh, anyway, uh, not that it's all drummers, but they're the leaders of the recordings that I've uh, selected for this week. some famous and some not so famous, uh, and some interesting side men along with them. So I think uh, I think this is a pretty interesting combination of recordings here. And we'll start out with uh, a drummer that I didn't know was new to me, uh, up and coming drummer, and uh, the recording is called Inventions, and uh, mm. it's on a label that I don't know either on OA capital letters two OA2 records uh, drummer Phil Parasol and he's a Seattle native Uh, he began playing professionally at the age of 15 and while he was still a high school student he played at uh, Lincoln Center uh, and some jazz festivals Montreux Jazz Festival Uh, he studied at William Patterson University and uh, he had as instructors the great uh, James Williams and Harold Mayburn, huge piano who, names. Who we heard in December. Yeah, and James Williams, a favorite of mine, is also. And, uh, and also on our top top uh, jazz uh, albums yeah, of 2021 Harold Mayburn recording. Uh, yeah. And he studied drumming with uh, Joe LaBarbera, Bill Goodwin, another amazing uh, drummer, uh, Carl Allen, Rashid Ali. And uh, he 
was on the Seattle jazz scene uh, for a number of years, uh, and now he's uh, based in Arizona. I don't know what's going on there, but uh, anyway, this is his uh, new release, and I'm interested when uh, a drummer is also the composer, and so this is an album of all uh, of his original compositions inspired by Bach. Interestingly, because I, yeah. I heard this a little differently, but I'll talk about that when right. we get into it. So, okay. in in uh, what I read about this recording, it's not that uh, the compositions he made are derivative of Bach, but in his musical composition studies and uh, writing things, he sort of noticed that all roads lead back to Bach. Uh, and so, when you compose a tune and you think about, I guess, uh, voice leading and you know, direction of harmonies. Uh, when you go through other types of music and composers, sort of, you always end up with Bach. See, it's unavoidable. Um, yeah. Now we mentioned at the be at the very beginning, like you know, uh, right. <laughs> we can't call Bach derivative because he's kind of like a summation. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's really true though. He really set the right. bar for everything that was going to come after. Yeah. Him. And uh, so on this uh, recording, we've got uh, also his sideman Tatum Greenblatt on trumpet. It's kind of unfortunate to have a name with blatt in it if you play trumpet because it's a, a blatty kind of trumpet, uh, which yeah. uh, Tatum does not uh, play with any blats, I should say. Um, yeah. Steve Tressler, tenor saxophone, uh, Dan Kramish, piano, and Michael Glynn on acoustic bass. Uh, and uh, Parasots on drums, uh, some extra percussion, gong and shaker. Uh, the album starts out with a tune called From the Ancestors. It sounds serious. Mm -hmm. um, it's got a complex, even drum beat, weaving horn lines uh, that sometimes join together. Uh, it's kind of a feature of the horn lines in this album. Uh, there's a lot of looseness uh, in them uh, that gives sort of a spontaneous feel uh, to the compositions. Tressler comes up first with a tenor solo. Uh, the beat breaks into swing for sections of hmm. the uh, piece, uh, and Glynn switches over to a walking style bass. Um, Parasot mixes up the rhythms with complex textures and fills, and he's also a hard hitter on drums. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, he's yeah, another subtle right drummer. Away. <laughs> yeah. So he, he uh, really... Um, gets the accents a lot. Uh, Greenblatt's uh, up on trumpet next. It's kind of a compact sound, uh, but he has really good agility and range on the instrument. Uh, he shows that for the whole album. And then uh, Kramlish gets a piano solo here. He's got a lot of rapid lines uh, and high energy, and the horns come in for some backing on his solo. And then Parasol takes his own drum solo here, uh, mixing things up on the snare and toms and um it's a good start to the album get a feel for the freshness here uh it's a really free and open feeling tune that sort of sets uh uh sort of the mood here track two is quill and knife that's a cool name uh hmm. it's time for some lighter brushwork on this one it's an easy swinging tune but it's in five four uh so uh a little difficult time signature to play in. Uh, Greenblatt comes in on the melody, uh, 
to start things out. And then uh, a counter line is added by Treshland Sachs. Uh, the phrase lengths go over the time signature in an interesting way. Uh, Greenblatt has a nice lilting solo with nice melodies, and Tressler's solo is a little groovier on this one. Uh, Kramlisch on his solo is a lot of long interconnected phrases uh, before they go back and repeat the melody. So another kind of fresh sounding tune with a lot of spontaneity in it. Uh, track three is Apparatus. This one starts with a drum beat intro that has kind of a more of a rock feel to it. Uh, there's a syncopated riff in the piano and bass before the horns come in. Uh, on this one, Kramlisch has a rhythmic solo, lots of complex patterns. Uh, Parasote keeps a kind of chug going in the beat uh, between the bass drum and snare here. It's a different kind of rhythm, and he builds it up with fills. Uh, Greenblatt has a nice solo here that starts soft, works in the upper register, gets some lip trills in his solo, and uh, Tressler gets up high in the upper register as well. And then uh, Parasol has another drum solo here. He breaks up uh, the big beat uh, until uh, the riff and tune return. Track four is called Pay It Forward. It's another big beat, and it's just drums and trumpet to start this tune. It's kind of nice... Uh, sparse way of beginning. Uh, the melody has a jump to it thanks to Glenn's syncopated bass work and everyone joins in as it gets going. They get a great groove going. Uh, Kramlisch solos over that groove and he adds nice rhythmic chords to match the beat. Uh, the horns return with both uh, simultaneous solo lines. And Parasot has another impressive solo on this one. He keeps the big beat going but he gets around the kit with dexterity. Um, so yeah, he's a drummer. He has finesse, but he also has impact. Uh, and he shows that off on all these tunes. Uh, track five. Oh, oh, well, before oh, yeah, you go, go on, I want to mention here. Um, this is about the point where I was thinking about that title, the Bach Inventions. And I said, when, we, when you think about Bach Inventions, you think about note against note. You think mm. uh, counterpoint. Right. Well, you have counterpoint here, but it kind of sounded more like uh, when you think of jazz counterpoint, you think of New Orleans because right. there's um, brass bands all played in sort of you know, polyphonic right. melodies. And um, so I, I didn't really make I – understand, I understand that he means like, oh, Rosalie, back to Bach. And the New Orleans ones ultimately does too, but it's just a di whole right. different sound to it. But um, – yeah, this this kind of the sort of polyphony in jazz like gives me like a feeling of New Orleans, and this tune did that actually at the yeah. beginning. This is where it, the New Orleans kind of feels sunk in for me. I think we get um, in jazz. You know, you have that in New Orleans. We have these um, kind of uh, different melodic lines going on at once. Uh, then in swing, a lot of swing, you know, gets. Um, harmonized more uh and then when you get of course in big band lines and then bebop it gets really complex so you you have a lot of unison type of playing and cool jazz was a case where you got a more of a bach counterpoint if you listen to you know um chet baker and art pepper or jerry mulligan you have these independent lines because these guys were really wonderful uh melodic improvisers and they could really imp and a lot of those recordings that has no piano so you've just got a sax line and a trumpet line and they're working these wonderful 
sort of uh, counterpoint uh, spontaneous you know melodies that work uh, weave in and out and trade off and we don't hear that a lot but I think he's going for that kind of thing here by giving the horns more freedom and you know they're they're improvising together uh, simultaneously in a lot of different places uh, that gives it kind of real it, it gives uh, both uh, spontaneity but also a sort of um, counterpoint yeah. kind of feeling to it uh, that you get in uh, Baroque music. So Yeah, it also makes your mind, when you hear counterpoint, it makes your mind let go because you can't follow all the voices. Right, you know, you right. have to kind of, you can choose one, you can just sit back and like hear yeah. the whole texture or weave. Yeah, you, know? you kind of have to pull back to get everything in way at once. Mm. All right, so uh, the next one is uh, Compendium. This has got kind of a Latin beat to it. Uh, very interesting kind of time signature thing going on here. The intro has three measures of 4-4 four, four, and then a bar of 2-4 as a pattern. Hmm. And so you, you get into this, you know, 4-4 uh, I, I could beat. make that out. <laughs> it took me a couple <laughs> listens to figure I, out what's no, going on. I knew on. there was something with the rhythm, but I couldn't figure yeah. out what it was. Um, and then yeah. it changes to 4-4 four, four for the main melody. Uh, the horns are lyrical and harmonized. Uh, Greenblatt has a really p pretty and lyrical solo to match the mood. Tressler is a little more playful with swooping lines in his solo. Uh, Kramlisch shows a nice touch and balance between fast runs and space figures on his solo. And uh, Glenn gets a bass solo uh, for the first time here. He's got a nice woody tone uh, and synced rhythms uh, figures to Parasot's beat and after they repeat the melody they come back with this interesting 4-4 four, four, and then 1-2-4 kind of part uh, so interesting time signature. The next uh, track is called For the Unseen this is a slow and bluesy tune uh, it swings with Parasot's brushes and has kind of interesting harmonies to it uh, Greenblatt plays the melody and Glynn has a gentle bass solo on this one uh, Kramlisch has a tasty piano solo on this, and uh, Parasol switches to sticks mid-solo uh, there, uh, and adds some more crispiness on the cymbal and snare for Tressler's sax solo. Uh, Greenblatt, uh, I really like the solo on this one. It's a very chill and tasty uh, solo uh, before Tressler joins in to harmonize on the melody. And then Parasol switches back to brushes again. So it's a really relaxed vibe, um, but a lot of textures going on in this one. Track seven is Running Leaping. Uh, this is a start and stop melody uh, that kind of bebops along at first, but then it changes to a Latin kind of modal thing and then <laughs> finishes so back it's... up on bop. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. wow. Whoa, where are we going? Uh, give you a brain a workout here. Is it yeah. a, good, a good workout in a good way. Yeah, in a good way. Kramlis yeah. charges out uh, with the first solo on piano, really grooving over Parasol's ride cymbal. Uh, the groove goes back to swing. Uh, Greenblatt has some really nice boppy feel in his solo. Uh, Tressler stays in the swing as well, uh, but Parasol adds huge fills and other mixes uh, before he gets his own extended solo on his own. So the mix of rhythms on this tune keeps you on your toes. Uh, track eight and the final one is called Noble Calling. It's another 5-4 tune. Uh, Glenn gives it motion with a lilting bass pattern. Parasol makes a unique beat with rim taps uh, on this one. And Kramlisch plays a pretty intro. Uh, Greenblatt starts the choppy melody 
on his own and then Tressler joins in with some harmonization. Uh, Glenn gets a bass solo on this one too and he first mixes it up with some triplets over the meter. Tressler makes his own solo kind of bluesy. Uh, Greenblatt another great solo on this one. He starts simple but he builds it up to fast phrases and Parasol is a good uh, backing drummer. He's listening and he feeds with some encouraging uh, fills and things. Uh, and then Kramlisch has a nice solo on this one too before they go back to the melody. There's a cute ending here with just the bare horns uh, and ends on a final low uh, piano note thing. So yeah, uh, a player I didn't know about but I enjoyed this recording. It's got a fresh sound. Parasol's got some unique writing. You wouldn't think it's inspired by Bach but once you know that I guess you can get some of the things that he's um, being influenced some by. Of it. But, yeah. but when he's getting into like Latin, anything with rhythm has nothing yeah. to do with Bach. Not, Bach is not about because yeah. they're all perpetual motion, like right. in Baroque music. That was part of that style. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the whole yeah. idea of like incorporating, you know, changing rhythms into classical music didn't come about until the right. 20th century. And so that you sticks know? out here because he uses these interesting time signatures and a mix of beats. And I, but I do so I like that, and I also like how he gives the horns a lot of freedom here. His own drum technique is impressive. Uh, I liked uh, Kramlisch's piano playing; I thought that was nice. And Greenblatt's trumpet playing stood out to me uh, as being uh, melodic and nice. So yeah, interesting. Uh, a drummer composer, uh, which we're seeing more of recently, and uh, yeah, I'm interested to see, you know, drummer's uh, concept. For uh, for yeah, I tend a whole to, approach, yeah, I, th I tend to think they make the best leaders. They um, mm. because they don't, they're not really. I mean, they can solo, but they're not melodic soloists. So right. they have to kind of leave that to their their uh, charges there. So yeah. and they wind up, uh, you know, think of Art Blakey. They just wind up, and even um, some of the other drummers we heard in those other programs. They, you know, Kenny Barron on the. Um, on the um, oh man, <laughs> my whole brain is going crazy. On that, the Joe Farnsworth, the Joe Farnsworth album. Jeez, yeah. I just listened to that the other day too. Yeah, um, yeah, just they they really make the other musicians shine right. a lot right. in in ways they ordinarily wouldn't. So I'm right. always very interested in that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I enjoyed this too. I thought it was good. I liked his uh, heavy hitting style. Um, and I like the uh, the bit of polyphony we heard. I really like polyphonic jazz, and I think uh, mm. polyphony in music, note against note, is really a sign. If you if you enjoy listening to music like that, um, you're an adult. I think that yes. counts as adult as being an adult. Yeah, liking you can, polyphonic music, you can deal with more than one thing going on at a time. Right. So there's a. Uh, a new a newcomer kind of relatively i mean he's got a, a career there but you may not have heard from him uh, but i hope we hear more from parasol i think this is his third release as a leader and now yeah. we're going to go on to uh a nobleman of jazz uh mr louis hayes hmm. and uh his new album on the savant label crisis <laughs> uh, which is uh uh, Freddie Hubbard tune that's on here. So now uh, <laughs> this man has uh, impressive resume uh, and career. Uh, Detroit native, and interestingly, genealogically, he is the cousin yeah. of Prince. Ah, 
I had no idea. Yes. Prince Rogers Nelson, I believe through his mother's uh, family, uh, is actually was his cousin. And um, his main associations uh, include Jazz Royalty of Horace Silver Quintet, the wow. Cannonball Adderley Quintet, Oscar Pearson Trio, and in his own groups as a leader, uh, he had such players as Freddie Hubbard, Joe Henderson, Kenny Barron, and uh, also uh, sax and flautist James Spaulding. So <laughs> this is uh, a jazz master here, uh, Louis Hayes. And uh, do, do you know about how old he is? He's yeah. I was going to save that for the end, but uh, he's, oh, okay, save it for the end. He then. is. Don't, don't. Okay, I won't tell you how old he is yet, but um, okay. Keep yeah. us in suspense. You will not, you will not think his skills have degraded at all when you listen to this wonderful recording. Uh, it's great. So Louis Hayes on drums, uh, Abraham Burton uh, tenor saxophone, Steve Nelson on vibraphone, which really gives this album its uh, unique uh, tonal mix. Uh, the great David Hazeltine uh, on piano. Hmm. Desron Douglas on bass, and we've got a vocalist here, uh, but she's not only a vocalist, I should say, she's an up-and-coming artist on her own, Camille Thurman. She also plays sax and flute, and I believe uh, it's gone back a bit, maybe 2013, but she was uh, one of the runner-ups in the uh, Sarah Vaughan uh, vocal competition that uh, Samara Joy, uh, who we featured, was a winner of in uh, vocalist um it's going back a ways but uh, she's not only a vocalist but she's also a, a a sax player and i believe she plays flute too i've heard a few of her uh, recordings uh, and she guests on a few tracks here um and uh, so we've got a nice instrumentation some variety and uh hayes uh, has a nice program of music here uh with a lot of compositions you may be familiar with. Uh, the first one is called Arab Arab by Joe Farrell. Uh, this is a hard bop modal tune. Uh, the melody, as you'll see, is a pattern on this recording that works really well. It's a unison uh, rendering by Burton on tenor and Nelson on vibes. Vibes and sex together makes a nice combination. Uh, Nelson is up first with the solo. Uh, he's pushed hard by the syncopated chords of Hazeltine. Uh, Burton comes next on tenor. He gets a nice edgy tone when he wants to push it. And Hazeltine has his own solo with dancing lines and accented chords. Uh, there's nice bass work underneath everything by Douglas. Hayes, you'll notice, has really nice cymbal riding uh, on this whole album. And here it shows off right away rides through the tune, keeps that pressing beat. Uh, Hayes himself takes a nice tight solo uh, after everyone else does. Uh, so a good start to the recording. Uh, track two, Roses Poses by uh, great vibraphonist Bobby Hutcherson. Uh, so uh, when you've got a vibraphonist here, you may as well f uh, feature a tune by another great vibe player. Uh, really nice hi-hat work to open this tune by Hayes. Saxon vibes again share the melody together. Hayes subdivides and mixes up the Latin beat creatively underneath everything. There's more big accented chords by Hazeltine to punctuate everything. 
uh, Nelson solos again first on vibes and uh, Burton uh, has a more intense tenor solo on this one uh, Hazeltine on piano is adventurous in the rhythms and harmonies in his solos too and Hayes has some nice flourishes over uh, Burton's final crying notes on the sax uh, it's a nice tune uh, three uh, an old jazz standard I'm afraid the masquerade is over by uh, hmm. Ali Rubel uh, this goes back to the 30s I think uh, it's a pretty uh, standard I, I ballad. love, I love those tunes from the 30s yeah <laughs> just, it's great uh, yeah. it's a nice ballad They're... feature and uh, here we've got the vocalist Camille Thurman uh, she knows shows a really nice voice control a measured sultry delivery that saves up for the soulful climax of the tune uh, Burton fills in the gaps in the uh, vocal melody lines with really tasty vibe fills and uh, Hayes keeps it uh, light and tasty on the brushes on this one just really classy uh, a nice contrast to the instrumental things uh, and uh, I, I really like uh, uh, Thurman's voice on this uh, it's yeah, this a, is a pretty long one. track to its seven yeah. minutes I just want to point out by the way that the first three tracks of us have these really cool poetic titles you have Arab Arab yeah. Rose's Poses and I'm Afraid the Masquerade is over right it's kind Very of nice, nice, uh, nice uh, sound to the titles and for the next one I've got some <laughs> some trivia you're not going to get anywhere else except on the adult music podcast okay wow. so uh, track four is Desert Moonlight Right. Okay. And it's attributed to Lee Morgan, uh, the great jazz trumpeter, who recorded this tune on his 1965 album, The Rump Roller, uh, where he actually, or not maybe he himself, but Blue Note uh, would uh, attribute this to him as his own composition. However, this is a Japanese song. Oh, really? That's right. The original title, Tsuki no Sabaku. Which, oh, wow. rather than Desert Moonlight, would be more like the Desert of the Moon. Oh, like the moon is a desert kind of thing? Yeah, well, yeah. The, the Desert of the Moon. The Moon yeah. Desert. Uh, yeah. And this uh, is a tune that was written by the Japanese composer Suguru Sasaki back in the 20s. Wow. And became like a children's, not really a folk tune, but like, you know, a, a tune for children... Uh, that had you know like images and things associated to it um but in i, I think that um it gets passed off in the jazz world sometimes as lee morgan's uh, composition and uh it's not it's a great melody that really sticks in your head uh and it's got this kind of um catchy minor melody um and uh but anyway it's a japanese tune so um you didn't know that now you know um you see that you got the stephen foster tune last week that was made into a japanese tune that's right yeah now you got uh, a japanese tune that was made, made into a yeah. jazz tune yeah. it's great how did you actually Talk find about out about appropriation. this appropriation well i'll yeah. tell you how i found out about this because yeah. uh because i have a japanese uh missus and oh uh, and she knew well yeah when i was one yeah. day years ago when i was playing uh lee morgan thing she said oh tsukino sabaku I oh, said, wow. Well, what do you mean? I said, no, this is Leah Morgan. <laughs> and we had this interesting discussion that led to that. Yeah. So, um, 
No, no yeah. you know it's originally a Japanese tune? Yes, no, I do. Yeah, I knew that from that okay. time. Um, and okay. then I just made sure to double-check uh, who the composer okay. was for this one. That's yeah. interesting. Well, interesting. I'm sure glad I'm on this podcast because I learn a lot of things. There you go. You learn something every day. Yeah. Anyway, this is a great little minor melody. Uh, it has these cool rhythm stops in the arrangement that uh, Morgan had, and they adapted here. Uh, and the rhythm stops except for Hayes' uh, cymbal under that which keeps things going. And then it gets into this nice walking swing. Uh, the Saxon vibes handle the melody again here, as they've done so far. Uh, Burton is really charged up for his uh, tenor solo. On this one, he gets a nice edgy tone. Uh, Nelson gets some nice melodies weaving through the chords here. Uh, and then he and Burton trade off eight-bar phrases uh, with uh, Hayes on this one before they get back to the melody. Um, for track five, we're going to... Uh, get uh, Camille Thurman back in with a great composer of uh, standard tunes, Jimmy McHugh, a tune called Where Are You? Uh, they give this one an upbeat swing, and uh, between the nice uh, phrases and the melody sung by uh, Thurman, uh, Burton fills in first, and then Nelson and then uh, we get Burton, Hazeltine, and Nelson all giving nice swinging solos before Thurman returns with the final verse. Uh, she's having a good time on this tune, and she even breaks into some scat soloing uh, at the end. Uh, so nice treatment. Uh, Jimmy McHugh, uh, a great composer. He wrote so many great songs uh, that have become jazz standards. Um, Track six, we're going to get Louis Hayes' original tune, Creeping Crud. What a great tune. <laughs> I know, right? What, what a name, great title. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is a medium swing tune. It's got a lilting triplet figure in it that kind of creates a happy mood. Uh, the vibes and sax share the melody once more. Uh, they both get swinging solos here. Hazeltine has a solo with kind of uh, fleeting lines in it. And uh, finally, Douglas gets some... Uh, bass solo time on this one and Hayes makes everything nice underneath uh, with uh, strict time and uh, gets in a lot of fun fills uh, driving on the soloists seven is uh, a scary title alien visitation Ooh. Hmm. Uh, by uh, Steve Nelson it's a slow ballad uh, it doesn't really match the title <laughs> image uh, with a gap uh <laughs> a gap-filled melody uh, that's uh, shared by Saxon Vibes again. Hayes divides up the beat with clear cymbal rhythms uh, under long-held notes by the uh, horn and Vibes. Uh, Nelson has the only solo here. It's kind of a feature for Vibes, and he makes a really tasty one with lots of trills and uh, other kind of uh, cool figures on the Vibes. Uh, Douglas adds discrete bass pulses under it all that give it a nice little heartbeat. Uh, it's a delicate and restrained performance, a nice tune that uh, sort of uh, doesn't sound like the aliens are scary at all, but <laughs> they're our friends. Yeah. Uh, then we get to the title track, uh, the Freddie Hubbard tune, Crisis. Um, it's a tune with a swinging minor blues riff uh, that switches kind of to a contrasting descending melody that's over a Latin beat. And then it has another swinging section to it. Uh, this is a fun one for Hayes to mix up the rhythms on. Uh, Nelson has a grooving uh, and bluesy solo first, and then Hazeltine on piano. 
They return to the melody for a go-around, and then they lay on the bluesy riff at the end for Burton to blow over uh, and jam out on. And this tune, uh, as unusually on a jazz record, fades out uh, rather Mm. than uh, having an ending. Uh, Nine is uh, Desron Douglas, uh, the bass player's original tune, called Oxygen. Uh, It's a swinging tune that has a piano interlude section in the melody, Nelson gets the first solo on Vibes. Uh, you can hear him real. You can hear it on the rest of the album, but it stands out on this one a lot. He vocalizes along while he plays, you know, a la Keith Jarrett kind of kind of thing. <laughs> uh, Burton blows next uh, with some really Coltrane-inspired lines on this one. Uh, this one clearly shows Coltrane influence, uh, but with good intensity. And yeah, he Hazel does tend to wail on this album, yeah. doesn't he? He likes yeah, he to does. go those big, yeah. you know, wailing he, notes. He has, you know, it's yeah. interesting. He has one of those tones. It's kind of soft and centered normally, but when he wants to, when he mm. changes his emotion, the tone also, it's like the color completely changes and gets this burr on it. Um, and so this is a good tune for that. Uh, and uh, we finish up with another jazz standard. Uh, it's only a paper moon, uh, Harold Arlen. Uh, tune um, and this standard gets a pretty fast tempo uh, the melody is uh, started over a static bass and piano like a boom 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 kind of you know yeah. it's only a paper moon boom 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 that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, but then it, uh, when they get into that second section uh, it's got a s- staccato and syncopated kind of uh, countering section to it uh the solos are all kind of short on this one uh nelson is up first after the break uh burton hazeltine and then they all trade off uh fours with uh, hayes to uh give a kind of you know drum feature uh before they get to the end so it's a really fun album it's a nice mix of tunes the vibes give it that extra tonal variety, not just the sax or sax and trumpet. Uh, there, you got a pair of classy vocal tunes that Thurman contributes. Uh, Hayes is energetic and expert drumming. No beats missed there at the age of 84. Oh, wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, because yeah, he hits, uh, he hits uh, pretty hard too. Yeah, uh, hard and precise. Yeah. So definitely check yeah. this out. It's a nice mix. Um, of tunes, great musicians, uh, nice flow of different emotions uh, with the vocal tunes, and Hayes is still on top of his game, uh, inspiration to all musicians at that age. Yeah, fantastic. And the final one, another musician that I didn't know, but when I saw the Sidemen, I had to pick (laughs) this up and listen to it. Um, I was thinking about that right away. From Austria, Clemens Marktel. Clemens Marktel Trio live in Austria with Dave Kikoski on piano pianist. and yeah. Boris Kozlov on drums. Now, we heard uh, them way back in the yeah, I think uh, last year at around. Two, uh, I think might have been. Featured, it was one of the uh, really early ones. Yeah. yeah their uh, duo album from last year. And uh, we've heard Kozlov a lot um, right. on this Positone uh, label um, that. Uh, they um he's often paired with uh art hirahara on Mm. and uh, we've heard him on some other sessions too uh so here um apparently um uh he 
well, the story is, uh, Mark Dahl is an Austrian drummer uh, from Klagenfurt. And uh, in his career, he played both in the Netherlands and then in New York. And so I assume he came across uh, Kozlov, a uh, Russian native, and uh Kikoski, who's from uh, New Jersey, I believe, in New York scene. Uh, and then now he's back in uh, Austria playing. And uh, he uh, called them up uh, to come over and uh, play in Austria. And I believe this recording is um, pre-corona uh, 2019 um, mm. and just got released uh, in November. And uh, it's a live session, uh, which makes it great uh, because they get to really stretch out on these tunes. And, yeah, and uh, boy, Kikoski especially does yeah, just that. Yeah. You're going to hear some really extended things here. Um, not, so we, and, they're not, and they're never boring, I no, have to say. He's no. got a million ideas. Yeah. I was like, never wow, runs this guy just never runs yeah. out of ideas. Yeah. Amazing. So uh, we're going to start out with uh, uh, Mustamucho, old Charlie Parker tune, uh, famous bebop tune. Uh, Kikoski starts out with the melody. Um and uh, he works in and out of the harmonies, um, but he keeps right on going. Uh, there's no break in this tune. Right. Uh, just Kikowski, uh takes the melody into a solo that becomes a showcase for him. Uh, he's got some really energetic swinging lines, and he gets in some bluesy feel um, things, too. He has uh, some amazing, cool two-handed runs and chromatic figures. Yeah. Uh, right. And he works out of the time. It's like he's he's floating free of the rhythm uh, that creates all this tension, but he's always able to bring things back in, you know, right, right. Uh, to the start of a new kind of phrase with the drums and bass. Uh, and so he's really uh, uh, going all around on this uh, tune to start things out. Uh, at the yeah, end... All the, yeah, all the ideas are interesting, too. This is one of those things where you're at a party and you just don't want yeah. it to end, you know? It's exactly, kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, this track is going on and on, and you just don't even notice it. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, like, it never runs out of ideas, up, Dave Kukowski. And yeah. uh, at the end, Mark, they'll get to a short solo spot uh, towards the end mm -hmm. of it. Uh, so this live date. So the the first tune is uh, eight in, about eight and a half minutes. And the second tune... Uh, 16 minutes long. I know. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is a Kikoski original called Winnie's Garden. Uh, it's an interesting uh, composition because it has this kind of uh, two-handed melody uh, in it. Kikoski's doing a lot of things, but the melody actually needs both of his hands to do it. And it also modulates in the melody. So there's mm. a lot to listen to what's going on here. Uh, and in that melody, there's also a lot of tricky gaps uh, and they have to be filled by Kozlov and Marktel, but they do a really good job with that. Um, once they get through that uh, tricky composition, uh, Kikowski turns to some kind of more laid-back lines and sparse chords uh, before he builds things up for his solo, because he's got a lot of time <laughs> to develop mm. something here, uh, and so there's no rush. Uh, along the way, he does all kinds of things. He quotes uh, from uh, the tune, Everything Happens to Me, and underneath all of that, uh, Kozlov uh, walks his fat bass. It sounds really great. Uh, uh, and Markdal responds to uh, Kikoski's rhythmic variations with different hits. So these, uh, although I imagine they didn't have a lot of rehearsal time for something like this, they're really uh, synchronized together and listening to each other really well. 
uh, high-level musicianship. Um, yeah, I also heard um, a, a monk quote in this from Kozlov. That's he right. Quotes, I was going to um, get yeah. to that. Yeah. Ooh, um, okay. When Kukowski gets more animated in his solo, uh, then uh, Markdahl pushes it into a double-time feel, too. Mm. So everything doubles up to the, you know twice as fast in the feeling. Uh, the harmonies get stretched. Um, Kakoski has these thundering chords uh, and huge dissonances <laughs> these things right up to about 10 minutes when he brings it to a melodic <laughs> climax you know uh, and then things quiet down completely and Kozlov gets his solo which as you said he starts with clo- quoting Blue Monk and so you got some and you know no, we hear Kozlov a lot on this podcast so far uh, as a great, you know, you know, sideman uh, rhythm player. He's but just here, on a lot of recordings that we listen to. Yeah. Here, he gets to show off his technique and ideas more on this album because he gets some real solo space here. Uh, so here, uh, he sounds great. Uh, he works up to some really fast lines and some cool intervals. Um, and then Kukowski jumps back in. They trade off eight eight measure sections uh, giving Marktel some time to do some tasty solo spots and then uh, Kikowski gets some more like amazing final speedy runs in at the end of it um, so yeah, 16 minutes on one tune uh, but you kind of wish you were there in the audience for this one uh, track three um, a, a switch in mood uh, the old standard my one and only love and uh, another wonderful showcase for the other side of Kikowski, his uh, lyrical side. Uh, this one starts with an almost three-minute intro uh, for a ballad uh, for Kikowski on just on piano, uh, showing off a, a lot of more modern kind of chords and things than you maybe usually hear on this kind of standard. Uh, when, when Kozlov comes in uh, to join in, his pulses sync perfectly with Kikowski. Uh, they're sort of like of one mind. The rhythms are are perfectly synchronized, uh, I th- because I think they've you know played together a lot. Uh, in addition to their high level of musicianship, uh, Markto keeps it really light, just some brushing textures. Uh, for a live recording, this is really excellent sounding, especially the piano. The drums are a little bit low in the mix, so you have to listen uh, a little bit you know, more carefully than a studio date to hear all of the drum things going on. Kozlov has a tasty solo here too. Um, and then it comes back to Kikoski, who has a really nice solo in addition to that intro that he did here. Uh, nice touch on his runs, uh, under which, uh, listen to the bass here. Kozlov had some really cool harmonics, uh, just mm. as a little sort of uh final glazing on there and when they get to the final ending he switches over and bows the bass for a little extra sonority on the last chord this is so beautiful it's hard to believe you know this is an actual live recording uh it's just a masterpiece pretty uh tune and never a dull moment no in the whole 11 minutes here. yeah it's, <laughs> it's great really crazy yeah, uh, really great truck four uh, is a Markdahl original. It's uh, just written as V, so I guess it's five, maybe. Or, or uh, it could be V. It like, could be V. It's hard to know. V That's all we know. You know, you know. Yeah. Anyway, it's his original tune. It's got a repeated riff and some kind of hypnotic 
the modal alternating chords in it. Um, it's not a lot to it, but uh, the rhythmic feel change and flow throughout this one, it's very kind of loose and uh, uh, kind of uh, synergistic uh, piece between the members. Uh, so it shows their great synchronicity and communication as uh, as a trio players. Uh, Kikoski works up to a rhythmically animated climax uh, here. Uh, Kozlov gets an extended solo here. He shows off some really cool rhythmical riffs. Uh, you know, you're not going to hear this on most of studio albums, but he gets time to do all these cool things. Uh, they get back to the melody and a groove on a descending line uh, that gives Marktel some uh, drumming space to show off on this one as well. Uh, then we get uh, another Kikoski original called uh, Dirty Dogs. Um, mm. And he also recorded this one on his Live at Smalls album. This one starts with a piano vamp intro, goes into a minor melody that has some kind of really unexpected harmonic changes. Uh, they're kind of cool. Uh, it's got a section with a left-hand piano and bass uh, kind of riff line uh that uh, counters and uh, over that mark till works up a cool kind of groovy backbeat uh, and it quiets down Kozlov gets another bass solo it's got some rhythmic punch that works into more cool interval riffs uh, and he brings it back into the melody which they go around again gets quiet once more uh, a little bit mysterious then Kikoski starts into a solo on this one that he really deconstructs part of the melody and works into more modal explorations on this one. Uh, very cool soloing. Uh, and Mark will show some excellent modern style drumming. Uh, nice cymbal textures, uh, harder beats when things uh, heat up. Uh, this one, again, uh, great communication between the players. Uh, and it finishes. There's only six tracks on this album, but the last one is 10 and a half minutes, and the next one is almost 11 minutes, too. So these are extended live recordings. Uh, and here we go for a monk tune, uh, Trinkle Tinkle. Uh, and so they really have some monkish fun on this one. Uh, Kikoski has some darting lines and a characteristic monk cluster chords. Uh, Kozlov comes up first with another uh, kind of extended energetic rhythmic solo. Uh, Kikoski has a lot of fun in his solo. He's got these huge percussive chords, uh, chromatic figures, and little monk-like uh, figures, the curiosity characteristic things that Monk would do in his solos. Uh, Markto gets a bouncy solo, and then uh, Kikoski adds and... Um, also, uh, calls love too. They add little embellishments along the way for the final drum solo before they wrap it up. So this is a really fun live date. Uh, there's lots of room to stretch out. I mean, it's a real showcase for uh, Kikoski. Kikoski, um, yeah, this is he, the best I've heard him actually. I think. Like, yeah, he's like you know endless ideas, uh, huge yeah. attacks. I I mean, I would just he almost you know destroys the piano. <laughs> With this huge tax, um, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, but and, the, nothing he does is unappealing. It's no, it's no, all it's, it's all yeah. great. It's, uh, and he's got the complete package. I mean, he can be really tender and beautiful on a ballad. He can be really aggressive and modern. He can do bebop. He can do monk. He can do modal kind of 
things. Uh, he, he should be great. more famous than he is, to be yeah, honest. He really should be. Uh, he's yeah. one of my favorite players to listen to. And, yeah, I really uh, enjoyed this recording a lot. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Kozlov, like I said, we know he's a great bass player, but here we get to see, you know, usually, you know, the bass player gets a solo on maybe two tracks if he's lucky on an album in there, you know, one time around. Uh, but here, uh, Kozlov gets, you know, some more time to stretch out. And uh, not only does he have impressive technique, which we knew, but he has some pretty cool ideas and, uh, you know, different things that he can uh, do uh, to uh, stitch those things together. So that was nice. And Mark Dole, I didn't know anything about, but he's a really good drummer. Uh, he's got the technique. Uh, he works, you know, well as a leader, uh, tying things together. He listens to the other players well and responds. Um, yeah, so uh, really nice uh, surprise recording. I'm glad I uh, knew this was out there. Yeah, and I, I think I speak for both of us when I say I would have liked to have been there. Oh, this would yeah. have been quite a night out, huh? <laughs> well, Kikoski's always been one of my you know favorite piano players uh, since uh, yeah, going on 30 years now. So uh, wow. I'm always uh, eager to hear uh, anything that he plays on. And, and this was a pure yeah. joy on this one. Yeah. So I uh, found, I thought the same thing. It's just, you know, nonstop. Uh, Piano uh, enjoyability. Yeah. <laughs> How can I say? Yeah. Yeah. Fabulous, fabulous player. Fabulous playing all around. So there you have it. Drummers as uh, leaders, uh, composers, and uh, organizers of wonderful new albums. Yeah. How can you beat that? It's a symbol of something. Civilization. Symbols of civilization. I think we were going with something. Is that, like that. Is that what we're going to go for? Maybe. Symbols of civilization. Well, the, the sim, I have here the symbols. <laughs> They're going to be symbols. I don't know. Zildjian or okay. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Beat okay. them hard. So there you have it, folks. Woo. A nice journey it's been uh, through it's all been a, kinds it's been of a, things. It's been a shortish one for us, although we're still over the yeah. two hour mark. I don't know. A little bit yeah. over two hours. But there you go. For episode 45, I've got a. We've still got a backlog of things from last year to talk about, but... The, and 2022 stuff is coming. I yeah, got it coming in two or three the, weeks. I know. <laughs> the uh, the labels There, there were, are already two classical releases that I want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, a few gotta, jazz well, ones. One. There's one from 2022 so far. The, want to talk I, I noticed the, the technique of release. Um, of course, no one wants to release anything, you know, like on New Year's Day or right after that. So both in classical mm. and jazz, there were a bunch of things that were dropped on the seventh yesterday, so right. boom, yeah. and there's another yeah. sort of uh, list that's coming out next week on the 14th, and I've noticed the 28th seems to be a big day. So there's going to be all these releases <laughs> coming out this month, and I've still got a lot of things from last year. Uh, a lot of them I'm going to have to just pick of the best uh, and uh, pull them together, and then we're going to have to go into the new for 22 um, because we have to move ahead. I think February is where 2022 really starts for us at the podcast, I guess. It's going to be year two. We'll be year two for uh, us. Coming up soon. 50. Yeah, our anniversary is coming up. That's right. So thanks for sticking with us. Uh, we appreciate that. Again, whatever platform you're listening to us on, please do like, follow, subscribe. Uh, help us get more listeners there. Uh, we'd appreciate that a lot. And uh, if you want to 
contact us directly. Uh, we'd like to hear from you at our email, adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And we'll be back again next week, episode 46. Ooh. Six new recordings. Close again 50. It's like going to be think, our silver anniversary. I think I hear some <laughs> kind of castanets or something Uh-oh. next week. Is there going to mm. be another Spanish fiesta? I think there will be. Ole. Yeah, that, that was our uh, ole. That was our biggest uh, podcast ever for some reason, which we can't figure out. It still it's gets downloads every week. Um, yeah, it, uh, I, I can't figure it out. If we knew, we'd do it again, but uh, it's probably best not to. Um, you never can figure it out. Even today, two people downloaded the Christmas music episode. What are they think thinking? That would be, yeah. You would think people would be downloading the best of the year all the time. But, you would think uh, so. But yeah, I don't know. You never That's know. my favorite one, I think. I sold the, the best Spanish Fiesta and um, French Me Baby, French Me Again Baby. Yeah, they like those. I can tell that the yeah. titles are good on those. Maybe oh, they like yeah. French music. But we'll we'll be having a few more of those this year when I find We're gonna have some fiestas. a mass enough French recordings. We'll be some titles with uh, alcohol in the title because those- We've got Spanish well. music coming next week. Yes. Should we change Spanish bourbon music. to tequila this time? What you do you think? Well, I'm going to save my tequila story for next week. So, okay, maybe <laughs> we'll, we'll see. But we need that. to put that in the title. Then we'll see. We could do that. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for staying to the end. And this has been episode 45 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And we'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm.